Howdy, and welcome to another episode of Adult Onset Horsemanship. I'm your host, Daniel Dolphin. My guest today is a horse trainer I met in a bar long ago, where many people probably meet him for the first time. Mr. Patrick King, the incomparable classical dressage master. He started his apprenticing as a teenager under Ray Hunt. Mark Russell turned him on to dressage. He has since studied under Charles DeCuffey, but he still has enough chops in the Western world that he's actually been a pin wrangler for Guy McLean at Road to the Horse. Patrick annually goes back to Portugal to study and teach at the Valencia Equine Academy, as well as the Royal Andalusian School of Equestrian Art in Spain. Patrick, how are you doing today, man? <laughs> I'm doing well. Thank you, Daniel. Great to be on here with you. And that's that's quite an intro right there. There's a few pieces we can fix in there, but that's all right. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the what's written and there's what's in between the lines, right? <laughs> there we go, right? That's what we'll go with. That's what we'll go with. Yeah, yeah. So I'm just going to fix a couple things on there. Number one, definitely not a dressage master. But thank you for that. I'm very humbled by that. Oh, yeah, you are. Yeah, you are. <laughs> well, you're you're very kind. Um, I no, I I am certainly not that, but I'm working at learning a little more every day. Um, and I was in my early twenties whenever I rode with Ray. There was um, some jokes about how young I was actually when I was there. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, and then I'm uh, I'm learning and guiding tours in Portugal and Spain. Certainly not teaching, but I'm fortunate enough that they are my teachers while I'm there. So thank you. Okay, well, fair enough. Um, well, we start everybody off, Patrick, with the lightning round questions. These are for points, so you want to be on your A game here. Okay, uh, like whose line is it anyway? A little bit, a little bit. Yes, okay. very much. That's exactly where I stole that from. Thanks for outing that one. I appreciate that, Patrick. <laughs> very nice. Yes, I'm not as original as I would pretend to be. All right, there we go. <laughs> What's your favorite way to relax? Meditation. Okay. Any specific group or just sitting there breathing and relaxing? Well, actually, recently, the last few months has been um, cold plunge ice bath meditations. Okay. I like that. I've done a little bit. Just nuts because I hate being cold, but that's like I've I've so gotten into that. That's absolutely the point, though, isn't it? Like I've said this before, one of my favorite quotes is by Samuel Clemens that you should eat a live frog first thing every morning and nothing bad will happen to you for the rest of the day. (laughs) Absolutely. It'll be the worst thing that did. (laughs) Morning or evening? Why not both? Okay. Bay or sorrel? Bay. (laughs) You know, that's one of those, like, it's probably 80% bay. I would have been 50-50, but it's it's not close to 50 50 it's, it's heavily- that's so interesting there used to be a statistic at least with the quarter horse industry that uh just over 80 percent of the registered quarter horses were sorrel or chestnut I, I believe it there used to be like the king ranch and the four sixes were breeding for them very specifically uh back like back in the 60s if it wasn't sorrel with four white stockings and a blaze face it went to palestine texas on a one-way trip no so kidding they were heavily wow. biased toward the sorrels and all so. wow really interesting because when you go to 
and I'm totally interrupting you with your lightning round, but no, no. when you go to Portugal and Spain, it's such a novelty for them to have a chestnut or a sorrel that it's like, oh, every eye is drawn to that. <laughs> Where for us, it's like, oh, yeah, it's just a thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Really so interesting. What do, what do they predominantly have? Um, you get a lot of grays there, a lot of grays, a lot of blacks, a lot of bays. Okay. And th don't they, I have heard, like, they name the colors at differently so like in europe a halflinger which we would all call a palomino here they could call a chestnut there is that correct i don't know I, i've heard that it may be more of a nordic thing i don't know because uh halflingers aren't from the south of europe but anyway oddities mm, around yeah, the world i don't know i don't know does pineapple belong on pizza yes sometimes okay are you a cook Oh, yes. What's your favorite meal to cook? What's my favorite meal to cook? Uh, oh, gosh. I love to make um, uh, butter, butter garlic scallops with a uh, mashed cauliflower and a bacon Brussels sprouts. That all sounds very good. Yep. I'm beginning to that's, that's one of my common favorite meals. Yeah. Next, whenever you get a chance to come up, that's what we'll have. Absolutely. Sounds good. I've got a couple of new questions just for you. My son's helped me out with these. So if there are good essential oils, do you think it's fair to say that there must also be evil essential oils? Yes. Black pepper is one of them you have to be really careful with. <laughs> All right. Do you have <laughs> a horse-related pet peeve? Good Lord, don't we all? Horse-related pet peeve. Shall I count the ways? My biggest one, actually, this is really funny because I've got some students who have called me out on it now because I call them out all the time. My biggest horse-related pet peeve is when someone throws their whip to the ground before they dismount. That drives me batty. I, I could understand that. Yeah, there's kind of an etiquette thing there to, yeah. Yeah, when, and that's what it is. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. I, I get it. If I was like around Western kids or something, and someone took their lariat or something and just chunked it on the ground like that. That, that was it's the same thing. Yep. yep. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yep. If you were to catch your teenage son with an S&M magazine, would you spank him? <laughs> Probably not. That's terrible. My daughter just turned 13, Daniel. That's terrible. Like I <laughs> I did so many things just went through my head right there and I'm like I don't know what I would do. That's yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> the things you get into as a parent. Your son helped you with that question? No, it was that one I stole. That's a little risky. We may cut it out. Oh. Who knows? I'll see how it goes. That's you're the first person I've asked that Jeez. of. <laughs> so, Good Lord. Do you have a favorite beverage? Water's a huge one for me, actually. I, I mentioned before we got on here that I probably drink about two gallons of water a day. Yeah, I I really like red wine. I am also a huge fan of espresso. We've got a cafe in town that knows my order. As soon as I walk in, they get started and they hand me six espresso shots in one cup because they know that I'm a bit addicted. Yeah. That's that's a lot. Yeah, I'd be floating. That's, 
<laughs> right, right. And and coffee itself, most people will tell you that coffee is my favorite drink. I I definitely drink my share of coffee. Would you tell us something unexpected about you? Something unexpected about me. Spent several years as a horse show announcer in my youth. That's what you have, sort of that velvety radio voice. So I guess that that all maybe makes I sense. guess yeah. yeah yeah. See, I usually talk about the zoo animals that I've trained, but the horse show announcer now—that's something nobody else has heard. Well, that's what we aim to do here. We pull out the things <laughs> that that you don't want the world to know. There you go, right. digging into the meat. Of- if you could have any superpower. What superpower would you choose? Good Lord, the ability to be in two places at one time. <laughs> Imagine how much more you could get done that way. We'd find a way to mess it up. Yeah, you'd just double the workload and still be in a bind in two places instead that's, of one. That's probably the truth yeah. of it. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's bad thinking. When wasn't technology supposed to make all our lives easier? Do you do you now work three hour days instead of twelve? You know, so no, yeah. <laughs> no I just work all over the world in the same day. <laughs> I guess uh, that is being in two places at once, though, isn't it? Look at there that. you go. Yeah. Look at that. That's my superpower. Time travel. I like it, man. <laughs> Thoughts or feelings? Why not both? Okay. Do you lean one way? Are you more analytical, logical, critical thinking or more emotional, sensing, intuitive uh, type? Mm. So I do actually uh, consistently catch myself in both. When I describe things to students, it's, can you feel this? Can you feel this? So I would say that I'm definitely more of a feeling when it comes to an interaction that way but stepping away from the actual physical act of doing something i can get lost in the thought about it but i suppose i get lost in the thought about it because of the feel of it that i get into so i'm just going to change that and go back to feeling yeah that's a great question are you decisive or indecisive i can't decide (laughs) i love it (laughs) you're the first person that has answered that way so that's one of those you'd be Perfect. surprised how many people I ask that question of and the indecisive people take two minutes and four paragraphs to tell me that they're indecisive. And I'm like, yeah, I think I agree. That's that's hilarious. Edit a bunch on. That's hilarious. Uh, my daughter will actually tell you I've anytime she's ever asked me a second time for anything. I've said, Carly, when was the last time I changed my mind? She would say, and this was when she was much younger. She would say, mm, never. I said, so what makes you think I'm going to start now? (laughs) But then recently we did change plans and she says, dad, you never change your mind. I'm like, oh man, the jig is up. I'm busted. Everybody (laughs) wants to have intelligent, independent minded kids until you have to raise them. And that's a pain in the butt, man. Let me tell you. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. It's a great challenge. That's what we'll call it. A great challenge. Do you have a hobby outside of horses? Not really. Okay. Unless you count cooking, but I mean, that's more of a life skill. Yeah, you do have to eat every day. So. Right. Who is your favorite Batman? Oh, 
That's such an interesting question. Who's my favorite Batman? I So I grew up watching the Batman and Robin short shows where they had like the rubber shark biting them when they were hanging out of the helicopter and that sort of thing. <laughs> um, so I can think of the Batmans from way back. Um, well, that, that was Adam West. And then we would have... Was that Adam West? Mm-hmm. Okay. We would have... There was actually a guy before him, but I think you and I are both too young to know who that guy was. Then we uh, yeah, had, I wouldn't know anybody before that one. Uh, Michael Keaton. We've had Val Kilmer. Mm-hmm. George Clooney for some reason. Oh, who's the... The British guy. Oh, with Heath Ledger. Oh, Patrick Bateman. He... Ah... Oh, I can see his face. And then the most recent one is Ben Affleck. Um, ben Affleck. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking there. The uh, Michael Keaton is really the one who comes to mind when I think of Batman. There Michael go. Keaton is really who comes to mind. And yet the, uh, I want to call him Butler, but I don't, uh, uh, I can't think of who his name is. But the most recent was Michael Caine, I believe. Uh-huh. Yep. Was the butler that would he was my favorite in that character? I'm a big Michael Caine fan, anyway, but yes, yeah. uh, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels is a is a classic. I made the boys watch that. <laughs> yes, <wrong>. sir. <laughs> uh, sweet, salty, or spicy? Depends. Okay, appreciation for all things. Do you tend to like spicy yeah. food? Uh, I like it well enough. I don't like spice that goes beyond flavor. Yeah. That's that's the thing that I'm big on. Like if it's, uh, you see these like, I think of them as kind of dumb. These, um, and I don't want to offend anybody who's a big fan of them. But for me, it's not a thing. The like super hot potato chips or whatever. I mean, I'm not a potato chip guy anyway. But when you put so much spice or heat to something that you can't actually taste it, I think that kind of devalues it. Yeah, you know. A, um, a, a, so I'm I'm more for flavor, regardless of whether it's sweet, salty, or spicy. Yeah, that just becomes a macho contest of how much pain you can take, basically, right? So, yeah, and I mean, is that really worth it? Are you enjoying the food at that point? What is your favorite dinosaur or deep sea creature? It's so funny. I don't know why Stegosaurus just came to mind. Um, okay. uh, so I'm just going to go with that. That's just what came to mind. I have no reason why or anything. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever had a UFO encounter? Uh, no, no, not that I remember. Although um, I used to have a training barn in a town called Acme, Pennsylvania, where they still every year have a UFO convention. Um, the training barn that I had was like a country block over from where there was a big supposed landing and they covered a dairy barn in some giant bubble back in the late seventies, early eighties. I think it was a strange little connection, but nothing for me. I don't know if the audio was picking that up, but I'm a little infamous for having an animal interrupt the podcast at some point. Oh, I, I hear you. I'm okay. yeah. Uh, I think that is- adds to the reality. It is yes, it's a real. We, we, yeah, we don't live in a bubble around here. We have uh, all the things. <laughs> Here's a new question from my youngest son. 
could a vampire detective enter a house if they had a warrant? <laughs> That's got some layers to it, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so long as the residents of the house were not Italian. Ooh. Okay. So it's, it's because the there'd be so much garlic in there uh -huh. that they wouldn't they wouldn't want to. I like it. <laughs> and it was at night, right? <laughs> right, right. Exactly. I mean, that's that's just assumed that it's at night. Yeah. <laughs> well, Patrick King, I have amazing news for you. You are the first guest to break a thousand points. A uh, thousand and one is what you got, which means you have thousand and one. Yes. Reigning high score on this fantastic list of lightning round questions, and that entitles you to either a genuine compliment or an awkward silence. Your choice. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Well, since, well, oh boy, I don't know. Let's go with a genuine compliment. Oh. I feel like, well, yeah, I don't this know. Is, I'm good on the awkward silence points. No, you, you said genuine compliment, so it's always hard to, to compliment actual friends, but that's why I put it in here. I don't feel like I'm real good at complimenting. I'm always the finding problems and fixing them so i put that that in there just so i had to compliment people on this oh good so, then, then i yeah absolutely if i've earned this i'll, I'll pay up man this is my ice bath for the day right here <laughs> <laughs> so patrick i will say that i truly enjoy talking horses with you uh whether you consider yourself a master or not i do i find you to be one of the more technical horse people that I have been able to be around and can have conversations with you on a level that I almost never get to have conversations with people on. And I, and I have to say, I truly appreciate that. I mean, for, for the most part, as a pro, you, when you get to certain levels, you have a very difficult time finding mentors and people that are on your level because it just gets to be a smaller and a smaller group of, of people. And so I, I genuinely appreciate bouncing some thoughts and some ideas and things off of you and the the level of knowledge that you have about horses and footfalls. And I also really appreciate the fact that you kind of do blend those two worlds of horsemanship and the Western side with the dressage side. So it just, frankly, it's like having a conversation in your own language instead of having to have a conversation in a second language for me, which is the dressage world, which, which is, you know, it's all, there's always a, a barrier of language there for me at least so i really do appreciate that of you i truly think the world of you and I, i'm glad that i finally got you on the podcast and we get to have this chat so thanks for coming on oh my gosh well goodness daniel thank you so much i i appreciate that so very much and i'm not very good at receiving compliments so all, all i can really say is thank you very much i appreciate that <laughs> <laughs> I feel you. <laughs> I I do appreciate that so much, and and I feel the same way of you as far as you know the the technical conversations that we can have, and that I feel like there was, and and pretty much right away I felt that that link of you're somebody. It's kind of in the same tribe, you know, if that if that makes sense. And mm -hmm. I feel like that term can kind of get overused a little bit recently, but but I do feel very much the same way. So thank you, I appreciate it, and I'm so glad that we were able to make this time to talk. Yeah. Well, Patrick, why don't we, uh, since I so badly botched your bio in the beginning, I, I try to ask everybody just what it is <laughs> that you do. Give us the 30,000 foot view of Patrick King, please. 
a 30,000 foot view of Patrick King. So um, I do, as you mentioned, I have a, a Western background. I was an apprentice to the master horseman, Ray Hunt, and uh, got the opportunity through foundational programs, starting a lot of young horses to cross paths with many great horsemen and horsewomen all over the world. And that's turned me more to classical dressage uh, and also more recently into forms of bodywork and different health modalities for the horse and even some for the rider. A big thing for me that my primary focus is simply on good movement with good emotional acceptance. I guess that's that's a big piece of it where the horse is an active participant in the process of the training. Um, I teach, I would say that a, a large portion of what I teach is in handwork. Recently, there was a time when most of what I taught from the Western background, uh, most of what I taught was foundation work. And that's gotten into in hand work, uh, into more of the lateral work, things like that. I'm really fortunate to get the opportunity to work with horses at all spectrums. Even this morning before we came on here, I had the chance to coach a couple riders from different places in the country. And then I went over to the barn and I rode my Grand Prix horse. And I also rode a young horse that has very, very little education. So it's, it's being able to balance all of that across the spectrum. I have I have one student who refers to me frequently as the what does she call me the collab the integrator the integrator is what she refers to me as and I and I really like that I've I've tried to make it kind of a mission to understand a lot of every step of the the process for horses and to understand a lot of what folks from different disciplines are doing so that I can have conversations with folks about what it is they're doing at their stages of training, uh, you know, whatever their modalities are, that sort of thing. So I think that's where she comes to the idea with the integrator. Uh, and I, I really love that. That's that's an interesting thing to me. I hadn't thought about it until she mentioned that. But to me, it makes a lot of sense because it's about bringing everything in. What you know, if, if, if you were to show up to a clinic, I wouldn't say, well, what you're doing is wrong because it's different from what I'm doing. Right. My job would be to say, OK, I'm understanding what you're doing and here's how we can find that. Maybe it's a front door. Maybe it's the back door. Maybe we have to take the back alley to get it to where we need to be to help you with the, whatever the goal is that you come to the clinic with. I, I find the same. It's I think it's part of how you and I appreciate one another is is that ability to just recognize even though we're doing things differently, it's because our goals are different. And if my goals were this, then I would probably be doing things the same way you are. But my goals, you know, are, are this instead. And good horsemen always tend to recognize good horsemen, even if they're in different, different goals, different disciplines, different whatever, you know. So Exactly. Exactly. Well, what what did originally push you over to what I'm going to call the dark side? So where did you go from blue jeans to tight pants? How did that happen for you? <laughs> <laughs> blue jeans to tight pants. Well, I do still on occasion wear blue jeans. So, um, <laughs> uh, well, it was actually it was it was interesting when I was with Ray Hunt. I got the chance to spend a couple months with him um, living. So mornings were coffee in the office and, you know, we'd go to lunch with Ray and we'd go to dinner with Ray and spend all day riding horses and, and having him chat with us. And when, when weather was really ugly, we would watch videos and he would comment on videos. Like I, I remember one day watching a Tom Dorrance video and he would 
play it for a little while and pause it. And then we would talk about what happened, talk about what might come up. And, and that was really fascinating, you know. Um, and he had in his pack room, he had a copy of Walter Zettel's DVD set, A Matter of Trust. And he always talked with high regard about dressage, dressage done well. And after that, I started lots and lots of young horses. Even before that, I started lots and lots of young horses. And actually growing, I, I should backtrack this. So growing up, I showed in some Western disciplines and I also showed hunt seat. So I grew up swapping between jeans and tight pants anyway. But then through function of cult starting and that sort of thing, I got more into the Western horsemanship and roping and lots of different things like that. But the more clientele that I started to build as a result of the cult starting that I did, the more people seemed to come out of the woodwork wanting their jumping horses and their dressage horses started under saddle. And what was pretty typical just in the location that I was at the time is that I would work the young horses under saddle. And at the time I traveled around to different barns. So say you had a couple of horses at your facility, I would come there and start them. I'd spend part of the day at your place and I'd drive across town and spend part of the day at somebody else's place working another set of young horses. <clears throat> That's how I grew my numbers so quickly as far as the young horses that I've started. But there would be several folks that would say, well, I, I wanna get this horse going my primary trainer is teaching a clinic. I don't feel confident riding this horse in that clinic. Would you ride for me? So I've got the chance to do some eventing clinics and some dressage clinics at that point. And I'm not even going to lie. The first dressage clinic that I took, they were talking about different balance points and different muscle structures and things like that, that now I would understand. But at the time I thought, well, what the hell? Don't you just want them to go on a circle? Don't you just want a leg yield? Don't you, you know, don't you just was was kind of where my thought process was because I didn't understand it. I couldn't comprehend it. Um, and I had a pretty good idea of things. I had a pretty good handle on the horses that I was riding and even the young horses that I was starting. They would go along pretty well. Uh, but that started to really pique my interest as, you know, I'm I'm always I've always been the why guy. Right. Like if I don't understand that or if this needs to do this thing, why? Why do I need to do it this way? Why does it work this way? Why does the brain function that way? Why does the body function that way? I want to know the why behind it. And so that got me more interested. And uh, as I said, I, my own personal horses, I had a pretty good handle on them. I had one horse I was riding in the two rein and transitioning into the bridle um, from the Vaquero background side of things. <clears throat> and I remember taking a lesson with a dressage trainer uh, that I'd started several young horses for at the time. And, and she's like, okay, you know, leg yield here, shoulder in here and haunches in here. And I could put this horse into any position. I could bend him in half like a pretzel if I wanted to. And, uh, and then she said, she asked me for a half halt and I did or a, a half pass rather. And I did what I thought was a half pass based on what I thought I was seeing in videos that I was watching and things like that. You know, it's all about understanding and interpretation. And I gave what my idea was at the half pass at that point. And, <laughs> and she sighed. She said, what the hell was that? <laughs> 
That's when I said, oh, well, I, I don't know. I don't know what that was, I guess, right? It was what I thought was this other thing, but clearly by your response, that's not what it was, right? And so that that definitely turned me on to things um, as wanting to know more. And something, you know, uh, a couple of the books that Ray Hunt used to always refer to, I actually have them stacked here next to me. When Ray was teaching clinics, he would talk frequently about the book, Dressage by Henry Winmalen and the complete training of horse and rider by Podesky, uh, who was a head rider of the Spanish riding school. So it, Ray really imparted an appreciation for, I didn't quite have an understanding of, but I had an appreciation for. And it, it was interesting because that first lesson really got me thinking, Mm, I, I don't quite understand it. I appreciate it. And I did what I thought that was, but that clearly wasn't what it was. And I couldn't even tell you now what it was that I did. Right. But it wasn't obviously wasn't a half pass. So that that definitely set me on that path. And then I got the opportunity through different expos that I presented at and things like that. I got the opportunity to work with Mark Russell who was a student of Nuno Oliveira, who was first a farrier and a Western trainer and, and then ended up going and studying with Nuno and uh, coming more and more into the dressage circles. And Mark really set me on the path of wanting to understand deeper how the body works, how the horse's body works and how that influences how the mind works and things like that. There was at one point, the answer was from the foundation side of things, from the Western side of things, it's all in the feet. You got to just get the feet right. It's all in the feet, right? Move the feet, operate the feet. And Mark really helped me to see how there's a lot more than that. The feet are accessories of the legs, which are accessories of the spine, which is an accessory of the brain. Like, you know, there's, there's so many more depths and layers in there. And I'm not saying it's not about the feet, right? Mm -hmm. But there's other things underneath that that influence that as well. And if we don't have an understanding of all of that, then we can run into a lot of challenges and not have not have an answer for how to deal with it, basically. I know what you're, you mean. To me, the, the it's all about the feet thing is if you can kind of get the horse fine in the circle where you can start to leave them alone, then they start to relax. Then you start to get access so, so like the feet are like an inroad to the brain but like you say there there's multiple mm -hmm. stops along the way of of getting there mm -hmm. um, one, one absolutely of the things, yeah absolutely. I, I find people mess with the head way too much way too soon and they want to have a horse on vertical flexion and all of that stuff and to me you get the feet in the relaxation mm -hmm. first and then 80 percent of the head stuff takes care of itself without me having to do anything at all you know I think people get in their own way Absolutely. way too much, but anyway. Yep. Yep. And that can be a whole discussion in itself. Like when we get to talking about vertical flexion, I've completely stopped talking about that because I just, I would say that it's against my religion to even aim for vertical flexion anymore. You know, I love one of the things Charles DeConfey, who's become a mentor talks about uh, is that when, when the top line is right and the neck is extending the way it wants to be, the head hangs like a chandelier off of the neck and you don't pull on that chandelier, right? Like you don't touch it. And, and I've found that to be so true. And when we look at different horse breeds, and that's something I'm really fortunate to work with lots of different breeds and different disciplines. When you look at different breeds, if you were to say vertical flexion, 
right? Like a horse's forehead and nose, whatever, on a vertical. For some horses, you're going to be cutting off their air passage. For other horses, they can go a couple inches before you restrict anything, right? Depending on the thickness of their throat latch, depending on their conformation, things like that. And so, again, the why guy in me is like, well, why would we want a vertical flat? Like, what does that mean? You know, I find if we get a lateral releasing of the pole, the top line extends and the head hangs relaxed as it should. And the rest of the body is available to us. That that word extension to me is the key part of the whole thing. When, when most people are pulling on the reins, they're doing what I call turtling. That horse's neck is contracting and getting shorter and shorter and totally. withdrawing into the body. And, and that is the exact opposite effect that you should be having. And, and Absolutely. Contraction is not collection. Absolutely. And and if uh, if more people understood that, I think all of the, the things that make me throw up a little bit in the back of my throat with regards to vertical flexion would probably just melt away and everything would be all right, you know? But, right. It just wouldn't even be a thing. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So one of the things that I wanted to bring up was a a saying that I didn't hear you say, but I, I, one of your, I guess, apprentices had posted on their page. And I don't know if I've ever oh. said this to you, but but I've this is another. So my dream is when I get to build the place that I want, I want my arena, you know, you have sort of panels around. I want sayings of wisdom on each of those panels so that as I'm working a horse, uh, yeah. I'm surrounded by sayings of wisdom and I'm telling you, you've made the wall. So I got, got the notes folder. You're in there. Whoa. But this is the saying that I, I like. reached a thousand and one points and I've made the wall and you've made the wall. Oh, so you this, just you just stop the podcast here, man. You you can't top this. It doesn't get better. <laughs> so here's what you've been credited as saying. There is oh a boy. difference between looking at a horse and really seeing him. And I thought that was pretty good. Mm. And mm -hmm. one of the as we talk about Ray, one of the things that I see when and, and this goes throughout his more popularly known um protégés as well as they're working a horse it's very common that they'll say and there's the change and it's also very mm -hmm. common that as the camera is withdrawn 40 feet back you can't see the change that they saw because they're standing three feet away from the horse and absolutely me, um, yep. what he was talking about then without the vocabulary and probably without the proper understanding was that transition between sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous system so we just engage the flight side of the brain we got the horse tense and all and then we let him down regulate and there's the change meaning he just shifted back into the parasympathetic nerve system and i saw his wrinkles in his lips relax or around his eye or some little change that the camera can't possibly mm -hmm. pick up but i can see because i'm standing right here that's what happens mm -hmm. so uh, we, we were talking before we started recording here about that so for me, that's been the biggest part of my horsemanship and, and things I've talked about in the last several years has been that transition state between sympathetic and parasympathetic and trying to get people to be to a be aware that that's happening constantly right in front of your eyes. Mm -hmm. So so you should be looking for this and to be being looking and studying so that you can start to recognize that transition, because that's one of the most important things that tells you 
where this horse really is and what are the realistic expectations I can have for working with them right now or what steps might I need to take to get him back from where he is. But if you don't know where he is, you don't know you have to bring him back. And so right. the, the lack of awareness for that is is huge. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think that was kind of what Ray was getting at in some of his apprentices? And Sometimes, yeah. I think sometimes. And I think sometimes it was just talking about the more the core understanding that the horse was getting or a shift of the weight toward the understanding. So one of the things, whenever you talk about that, one of the things that also comes to my mind that Ray used to say all the time was that you prepare the position for the transition and the transition takes care of itself. Right. So that to me goes into like some of the conversations that you and I have had in the past about footfall and weight shift and things like that. But that that sympathetic parasympathetic, one of the things that I think people can get really hung up on is that they feel they, right? The king's they, the notorious they, that sympathetic means bad, parasympathetic means good. Right. And that's something that we really got to be. I think I, I try to be really careful with students anyway, to help them understand. And we look at it a lot like a yin yang, right, where you've got, say, the white portion of the yin yang and you've got the little black circle in it. Right. And then you've got the black portion of the yin yang and you've got the little white circle in it, which says the basic story of that is that within every good, there's a little bad within every bad. There's a little good. Where do you want to live? the line that separates the black and the white shapes. That's the line where learning happens. Okay. When we, if we think about that as the white is parasympathetic, the black is sympathetic. It's not that one is inherently bad and one is inherently better. One uh, can take the body into a desire to change and one can take the body into a desire to relax, right? If you go too far to one or the other, it's non-productive. If you go too far into the idea that the body needs to change, then the horse gets totally reactive, total self-preservation. If you go on to too far on the side of the body wants to relax, like I talk about athletic relaxation versus, I don't have a better word for it, useless relaxation, right? I'm sure there's a better word, more PC word. But if you think about uh, like an athlete preparing for a movement, that's an athletic relaxation where they're on point, the body's doing what it needs to do. They're not restricted by anything, right? If you think about, I don't know, a teenager on the couch with a TV remote and a bag of potato chips or something, that's definitely not athletic relaxation. That's a whole different kind of relaxation that is not going to get anything positive done, right? So it, it's that, can we ride the line between, you know? Um, that's really what I try to think about when it comes to sympathetic and parasympathetic because they will go in and out of both constantly, all day long. It's what stimulates change in the body. It's also what stimulates change in the brain, but yes, I do agree with you a thousand percent that all too often people are not understanding when the horse is existing in that parasympathetic state, because just like people can, horses can live there, right? Just like people that are constantly anxious, constantly fidgeting, constantly on that self-preservation mode, horses get into that constant self-preservation mode as well. And if we can't find a way to help them back through it, one of the big things to me is that learning does not happen in the parasympathetic state, or in the sympathetic state of the nervous system. Association happens, but learning doesn't happen, 
right? So like when you hear your friends say something silly, like, well, my horse is afraid of men in yellow baseball caps, right? Like that sounds kind of foolish. And then you see a man walk up in a yellow baseball cap and the horse spooks. That's an association. That's the brain latching on to something that it felt was important in some moment of, we'll, we'll say trauma, right? Or some moment of importance that we didn't have any control over what the brain hung on to, right? And so that's operating strictly from the sympathetic. So that's association. Where learning is more, again, like I talk all the time about the horse being an active participant in the process and the horse actually cognitively understanding what we're asking for. And making a choice. Yeah. Making a choice. A hundred percent. You know, I'm always talking about the horse is the trainer. We're just the facilitator. We help them to find the answer. We help them to hunt for the answer. And I even think of it that way when it comes to, like I say, everything that we do with a horse is a form of body work, either to the benefit or to the detriment, right? Mm -hmm. And in the end, really, the horse is the body worker. We're just the conduit. We're helping them to find those spots of tension that they can learn to release on their own and things like that. Prepare the position for the transition, right? And the transition takes care of itself. Oh, or you yep. transition them in a bad way into into tension. Exactly. And and, yeah. <laughs> but either right. way, hundred percent the position that led to the transition, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boy, you can turn that around any way you want, right? And it's still true. That's why I love those simple sort of one-liners that the sayings of wisdom because they're so simple yet so complex simultaneously you 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 can look them like just that make the right thing easy and the wrong thing different difficult every year i find another layer to that onion that just like mm-hmm. boom how did i not think of that before you know it, it just it, it's constantly mm-hmm. revealing itself to me in new ways and it sounds so deceptively simple and and yet right so i love things like and yet that. I love that you mentioned that part uh, and only because there's another layer of the depth, right? That a student of mine actually just recently pointed out to me. She's got a Lusitano here in training and she's had him for several years. I think she got him as a weanling. He's a seven-year-old now and he's here for some development. Um, And she's done a good job of putting a really good foundation on him. And she comes from more of the foundation horsemanship side of things. And so she's got a real clear working understanding of this whole make the wrong thing easy and the right thing difficult. And uh, the last time she was here visiting, watching me work with her horse, we were doing some in-hand work and we were riding. And and she said that one of the things that struck her the most, and again, I didn't even consider this until she pointed it out. So I thought it was another layer that was like she shined the light on that layer for me. She said, you don't even acknowledge the wrong thing. You make the right thing clear. You don't even acknowledge the wrong thing. And I thought that was really interesting because in the conversation, sure, her horse had picked some wrong answers, right? But uh, what she was pointing out was that I didn't make any corrections. I might have said, let me clarify, right? But I didn't make any corrections. And from what she said from watching most of the time, if the horse gave the wrong answer, I just didn't engage any differently. And when the right answer came through, there was a softening that happened. Uh, from me and then from the horse also. So, and again, I'm not saying that I'm like any kind of master at this or anything like that, but I just thought it was a really interesting distinction that she pointed out there that uh, we want to make the right thing obvious or the right thing more clear 
and just don't even acknowledge the wrong thing. Yeah, acknowledging it in and of itself could become a, a form of reinforcement, right? If you do whatever, then then you wind up getting more of it. So, yep. I Absolutely. A lot of wisdom there. I always yeah. try to yeah. separate things out where I have teaching and training with horses. So teaching is when the horse doesn't know the answer. That's where we get a lot of the licking and chewing, the light bulb moments and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And then training comes when the horse has a pretty good idea of the answer and we're more refining stuff. And training mm -hmm. is where I may punish behaviors and so forth here and there to kind of sharpen the saw a little bit. But in the teaching phase, not not so much. You can, well, mm -hmm. I say that. There, there are some dangerous behaviors that I would punish with some problem horses at times. It just, it just sort of depends, but I think that has become, I don't know if this is a part of your world or not, if this touches you, but there are really some changes in the connotations of certain words in the Western and horsemanship mm -hmm. world where a long established word like leadership that has been around for 30 years and all of a sudden it's like it's a dirty word and are you do you come across any of that stuff in your <laughs> world are there any any trends that that pass around where yeah. all of a sudden yeah things are, are now all of a sudden school? yeah <laughs> yeah it's so funny because you say that and i don't know why but it brings to mind that scene from that old movie the princess bride Right. Or that. And I don't even remember the names of the cast. Right. Or, or the names of the act of the, the roles in that the characters. Um, but I'm reminded of you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. You know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, I shared something on my Facebook page recently and I do a lot of my social media just about engagement, helping people to think about things, or at least that's my goal. And I asked them about how do they establish respect with a horse? And I did that because it was kind of a double-sided thing, because I would say that there's um, a subset of trainers that have changed the word respect into something that I'm not going to drop names, but uh, justifies abuse in in their training method and it's gotten them tv shows and things like that and they've sold lots of money on dvds and whatever um all in the name of training for respect and developing for respect and blah 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 and respect if we if we go by the definition of the word respect it's an admiration for and I'm sorry, but if you're chasing a horse around in the round corral and you're, you know, throwing a stick and a string at him and, you know, throwing ropes around and and he's rocking back on his hocks and he's got all that negative tension in his body, you're not developing respect. You might be developing obedience, but you're going to be getting it without acceptance. I, I try to be really particular with the words that I use, even though it doesn't always come out that way. And I'm, I err a lot when it comes to that, but I do try to be particular of the words. So what things like leadership, um, as Ray used to say, somebody has to be the head of the company, right? Somebody has to have an idea of what they're going to do. One of the things that recently I've started talking about in clinics is that there has been this, um, 
I'm going to call it a fad. And I think that's kind of along the lines of what you're talking about here with words changing meaning. You know, there seems to be a fad or a fashionable way now of uh, going out to work with a horse and having no agenda. You know, just go out, don't have an agenda. Well, well, what are you going to get done? It's up well, to just the horse. whatever comes up, right? We're just going to whatever is the situation. Well, how do you know if that's good or bad if you don't have an agenda, right? I'm all about have an agenda. Absolutely, right? Like when I climb on a young horse for the very first time, let's say Daniel Dauphin sends me a three-year-old young horse, a four-year-old, I don't care, a 16-year-old horse to start under saddle. It's never been ridden. The first time I climb on that horse, do you know what my expectation is? And this is not maybe going to be a popular answer. It's not a common answer. But the first time I sit down on that horse, my expectation is that that horse is a finished Grand Prix horse, as much as finished doesn't actually fit into the definition of classical dressage, right? My expectation is that that horse is a Grand Prix horse. And do you know what I do? I fill in the misunderstandings that come up on the way, right? It's like we've got to, yes, have an agenda, but remove your attachment to the immediate outcome. And that's what gives us the ability to make adjustments, right? I might go out there today and my agenda, uh, in air quotes, obviously, is to work on my horse's three tempi changes. Okay. And then I find that, ah, well, we've got this stifle doesn't feel so good today, or his back has a little tight spot in here today. And because of that, he's making assumptions and he's maybe he's starting to make changes on his own, right? Uh, my personal horse at the moment, he can do that sometimes. If he doesn't feel quite right, or if he thinks he knows ahead of time what I'm going to be asking for, he'll sometimes jump ahead. And so I have to remove my attachment to the outcome and say, well, now here's a deviation that's going to help us get back on track, right? But when people talk about having no agenda with a horse, it makes me think, again, here I go with a, a an analogy in my head, but it makes me think of, Alice in Wonderland, right? Alice comes to the fork in the road. Which way should I go, right? And the Cheshire cat says, well, where are you headed? And she says, I don't know. And so his answer is, then it doesn't matter, <laughs> right? Well, how if you don't know where you're going, how do you know what road to take? If I don't know that what I wanted to work on that day because my competition is coming up or my whatever, the skill that I'm working on at this moment needs me to head down this path, if I don't know that that's the path that I need to head down, when I have bumps in the road, how do I know how to make my deviations that are going to point me back to that path? You know, so I feel like I'm with you 100 percent how there's there's words that have started to change, not just in the horse language. Right. But in 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 America, probably more than just America. Right. But in American language, especially recently, there's been a lot of change to to words. And it's not always bad. You know, I don't think it's always bad. It makes us think about language. And, and that's the interesting thing about language, right, is that it's always evolving. You know, there was uh, there was a point where you wouldn't find the word ain't in the dictionary. Right. Mm -hmm. Pretty sure you can find it there now. Right. Because language is an always evolving construct that that and it always has been. That's how we've got different languages that have developed around the world and within different cultures and, uh, you know, things like that. So I don't think that it's always a bad thing, but I think 
concepts become challenged, which is, again, good and bad, right? Concepts like punishment, correction, clarity, uh, you know, whatever. I agree with that. And what I appreciate about certain people and what annoys the hell out of me about others is when it's okay to have an actual discussion about the change we're proposing, right? Maybe this is good. Maybe this isn't bad, but Hey, let's, why don't we just unpack all of this stuff and see what everybody thinks. And then we have enough information to make a decision as to whether, yeah, we need to shift or no, we're good here, but maybe we just clip that little limb off of the tree and and we have a better picture now or, or whatever, Mm -hmm. rather than we'll cut the whole damn tree down and build for, (laughs) from scratch, you know? Um, right. Prune your bonsai, right? Yeah. Prune your bonsai. Reveal the, Absolutely. the tree. All you have to do is is remove everything that isn't the tree you want, and there you have the tree you want. Let me ask you. Well, I guess that depends on what your definition of is, is, <laughs> doesn't it? Maybe so. Uh, <laughs> we'll have a cigar and talk about that someday. Oh. <laughs> no, we're going to get suicided. We better stay away from that kind of stuff. <laughs> so, so uh, one of the things I do like to talk about in my clinics and all is don't get married to the exercise. And like you, I am I'm a why sort of a guy. So I always like to explain why we're doing this. And it may well be appropriate that halfway through that circle, your horse showed you that they don't really belong on that circle right in this moment. And you need to exit stage left and do whatever mm-hmm. you need to work on softening that back that it has showed you it's stiff or, or whatever the, the thing might be. So I, I very much stay flexible like that. What I think people tend to have difficulty with there is that they don't have enough of that roadmap to use your Alice in Wonderland reference in their head. And so when they deviate from the path, they know they're immediately lost where someone that understands and knows the map a little better could just oh you're just right over there it's 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 you know we're getting maybe getting a little too abstract with all of that but so like how much weight do you put into things like the formal dressage scale and how much do you give yourself permission to jump ahead of that or do this differently on this horse because he's showing me this do you feel obligated to to stay in the very traditional levels there or are you good with riding around the map a little bit depending on what the horse is telling you and i've got another level to this question we're going to get into specific to equitation in just a second so you may Mm -hmm. answer with that in mind but Mm -hmm. i think that jumping around uh see and i wouldn't even necessarily call it jumping around I think that we work with what the horse shows us that he's capable of understanding and capable of doing in that moment. And I think there comes a time where you know the map well enough that you can make those deviations still with the destination in mind. So that that it's actually, it makes me think of when you talk about how some people get totally lost. Right. That makes me think of uh, in the winter when I go to Portugal, I guide tours around a lot of different areas. And in the city of Lisbon, it's one of my favorite areas to guide tours around. I know the area, the areas that I know. Right. I'll say the areas that I know. 
I know them well enough that we could totally deviate from the path and go somewhere else and still end up back where we wanted to end up in the first place. But the folks that I'm guiding have never been there, most of them. And so they have no idea. And if I weren't to tell them, they'd get completely lost. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think there there comes a difference between the tour guide and the tourist. Right. And I've actually never thought of it this way until you just started talking about it in this way. But I think horsemanship is really a lot the same way. Right. Mm-hmm. We have the tour guide and the tourist. And we would say that the uh, vast majority of amateurs, amateur riders um, and even amateur trainers, they're more on the tourist side of things. And that's not a bad thing. I I don't mean that to sound like I'm downplaying that at all, because I think that's the most important place to be. Because until you have been a tourist enough, you can't be a tour guide, Mm -hmm. right? You can't just jump into being a tour guide. I don't care how many times you've read the book. If you haven't walked the street, you don't really understand the map, right? And that's the difference between, you know, just looking at the map and trying to do the thing versus actually taking the walk taking the hike doing the tour you know uh, and meeting the people along the way right me like whenever i take the tours through portugal there's shop owners that i know there's waiters and waitresses that i know there's uh, you know hotel staff that i know and i know them by name and i know them as friends and when we have a detour in our road it's to talk to someone right? It's to visit some other thing. It's to get advice on where do we want to go to see the best site at sunset, things like that. That's like the little challenges that people will run into with their horse. Like you say, don't get married to the circle, right? If we're on this track here and we think, hey, the great sunset is going to be up on this uh, overlook at this at this point in the city. And I see somebody in a restaurant and they're like, yeah, but you know what? It's the 16th of the month. And so the sun is going to set at a different angle. So you want to go over to this other place over here. If I was married to the circle, I would never deviate and I would never see that better sunset. Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's, it's funny that that just kind of came to my mind like that as it is. But you've got to know the map enough. You've got to have walked the city enough, uh, enough times to be able to make those distinctions. So the the real difference there between the tour guide and the tourist is that the tour guide has just been doing it a lot longer. It's a function of of time, basically. So that's one of those things I've, I know yeah. you probably come across this too, but I have a lot of students that are almost apologetic because they don't have the skill set that they want yet. And mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, you just you just haven't put in the time. It, it's why would mm-hmm. I expect that you can can do this? You're not supposed sure. to be able to do this yet. You haven't done enough hours in the saddle to to be here and And i think another part of that too is asking more questions right like just think of the number of questions that you've asked about i'm just going to use the analogy again of riding a circle right just think about the number of questions you asked about riding a circle compared to maybe a student in your clinic i'll bet you you've asked at least a hundred times more questions about riding a circle than what they have yet at this point for where they are, right? And that's just part of the process, right? So that that asking questions, that's the meeting with the shop owners. That's the talking to the waitress. That's the, you know, 
asking those questions to get to know the lay of the land. That's really what makes us intimately familiar with the whole process. The master has failed more times than the novice has tried, right? So a hundred percent. Uh-huh. A million percent. Yeah. yeah. Whenever I have something embarrassing happen, uh, like at a clinic, let's say maybe someone comes off or whatever, and and you know they they're not gonna be able to speak in public for the next hour while they wear that shame and all. I'm like, hey, look, I've eaten more dirt than all of you combined. <laughs> like it's not even close. It's it's it just happens. It's part of it. Don't worry about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's a rite of initiation. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's not a, not a problem. You just got one out of the way. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So that's so funny. I love that you say that you got one out of the way. I like to tell students that horses and people are born with a fixed number of wrong answers. And it's like an account in the bank. Every wrong answer you encounter is one less left in that bank. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, just get it over with. Fail faster. I love Fail faster, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, bringing that around to equitation, when when we first met at the Best Horse Practices Summit, you had done a, your you called it your Tai Chi exercise, and I thought it was real good. You had everybody kind of kind of stand and squat and move that wiggle their butt around as, as far as they could, and then cut that distance in half and cut that distance in half until that you were basically getting them to feel their spinal cord and how you could you shift over in the saddle but but just a little bit and for anybody listening that was what they referred to in tai chi as a figure eight (laughs) but yeah there was it started out with a lot of butt wiggling yes of course (laughs) i like butt wiggling better Um, (laughs) but one of the things i have often had problem with in equitation is that there's way too many people that are riding around with a looks like a broom handle shoved up their butt. And most of my world has been in cold starting and problem horses. And I very frequently violate the rules of equitation and get out of the box and lean what someone would think way too far over here, but I'm trying to draw that horse in or relax, you know, I'm doing it purposefully. And once I accomplish what I want, then I get closer and closer to that box and it becomes more and more subtle. But there are times when I feel like my experience tells me exaggeration can be a great help and, and so forth with a lot of horses. So how, how do you feel about that? Like I would say one of the marks of, of what I would call a dressage master is the ability to be in that position and still look relaxed. And there, there are not many people that pull that off. You know, uh, they look Mm -hmm. most 99% look uncomfortable and rigid and and they're not in the stiffness inside that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so what are, what are your thoughts on that? Um, so that can take us down several tracks. So when we talk about equitation, I think it's really important to make the distinction. There seems to be two different kinds of equitation right now. There's equitation as defined by a competitive discipline. And that would talk about here's the position that you want to be in. And and I think we can all picture that when we talk about a reiner in their equitation or a saddle seat rider in their equitation or a hunt seat rider in their equity, even a dressage rider in their equitation, right? It's like an assumed position for what you're doing. But then equitation, I would say equitation in the classical sense 
goes a lot deeper than that. And it's about how your body not only is positioned, but how it functions within that position and how that influences the horse. Right. So when you're talking about deviating from a position on a young horse to help clarify something or to help really make a point, that's part of the equitation. Right. One of the things that I think about all the time when we're talking about the equitation, Charles DeConfey talks about having five pillars. If you've ever seen horses work between the pillars in the classical riding school, there's a two pillars in the center of the arena. And you might see horses doing off, you know, tied to the pillars, that sort of thing. So we're referencing those as our five pillars, right? And he talks about the upper arm, basically from shoulder to elbow, and that should be vertical, right? And he talks about the two legs in their position where they should be sitting. And those are uh, two more pillars, right? And then the rider's spine as that fifth pillar. And he's talking about, you know, any deviation that we make, any request that we make should be within those pillars. And those pillars are a point of reference for the horse. Okay. And I think particularly when it comes to starting the young horse, depending on the sensitivity of that horse, depending on the strength of that horse for carrying the rider, depending on the suppleness physically and emotionally of that horse, the more strong, supple, and focused the horse is, the closer we can stay within those five pillars as we're working with the young horses. And the goal, I think, is for, for what I'm achieving, for what I'm aiming to achieve, is that we get closer and closer to that place of nothing deviates from within those five pillars, right? When you're climbing on a young horse for the first time, you might need to reach way back and pet on his hip or, you know, do, do something, you know, if you're exaggerating, hey, move over here, hey, move over there. You can, from within those distinctions, you can deviate in a way that helps them to understand. Or at the very least, if we talk about it from the physics perspective, you can deviate enough to the point that they almost can't help but do what it is you're looking for, right? And that can get the job done, and then they can learn from that, right? And you can move on to the next step. But to me, my goal is always to return back to that place of those five pillars. If for no other reason than the balance in my seat that allows me to not be blocked or braced by the deviation that might have been made. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes total sense to me, and I, I'm glad that that you uh, think of it that way as well. I, I, in my perspective, when I hear that talked about, it it tends to be described very rigidly, without the flexibility mm. or latitude for the exceptions that define the rule. You know, and and I'm all about mm -hmm. the why, and so sometimes I have a why that says I need to ignore the rule for the time being to get the horse on the road so that now we're on the map and now we can do what we, we need to do. I, I absolutely, I give myself license to do that kind of stuff all the time. So how boring would it absolutely, be? Absolutely. Like, <laughs> you know? Right. Right. Exactly. I think about that also, like you had mentioned the Tai Chi work that I had kind of brought a little bit to that best horse practices summit. And uh, there's a principle in Tai Chi that says within stillness, 
there is motion. And within motion, there is stillness. And I really think about that when it comes to our equitation, right? But when we, when we get to the point of thinking about equitation for competition for a specific discipline, and I'm not disrespecting that, I'm not talking down on that. I'm just trying to delineate that from what we're talking about is like a classical equitation, regardless of your saddle, regardless of whether you're wearing jeans or breeches, right? And certainly regardless of your hat. Uh, that classical equitation basically would say that within stillness, there is motion and within motion, there is stillness. And when we talk about equitation from the framework of a competitive discipline, we're almost more talking about a mannequin. Here's a pose. Right. And I think that talks to what you're and, and I'm not saying that it has to be that. Right. But I think that that's what we do commonly see is that it becomes a pose. It becomes a position um without flexibility as you mentioned and i think that's when it can really become a problem that's when we become hood ornaments instead of those five pillars right we become hood ornaments instead of points of reference mm -hmm. or, or a passenger rather than a driver right because totally because you got to be absolutely. one of the pillars to drive the thing <laughs> absolutely um, yep well, Patrick, I'm thinking we have been doing this long enough that it's it's probably about time to do our sponsors for the episode. And uh, oh, I, good, who's who sponsored us today, Dan? I, we actually have two. Okay, so so one of them is an account for you. So so you're you're aware that we're going to be talking about that one. But this is a, another uh, company that was reaching out to me. They're on sort of the cutting edge, the cusp, if you might say, of some equestrian fashion for men. So our main sponsor for this episode oh. is Gap in the Breach. Are you a male equestrian who's environmentally conscious and also wants sexy underwear? Gap in the Breach is here for you. Gap in the Breach men's riding thongs are just what you've been looking for. Our thongs are made from the finest Washington state hemp, a fully sustainable year-round sourced crop and very breathable for the stable jewels as well. We send this hemp all the way to Italy, where it is processed into the softest fibers you can imagine and tailored to fit you specifically. Our custom tailor, Francois, will be glad to set up an appointment for your measurements at your convenience. We offer a variety of colors to make sure your ascot and your riding thong match perfectly. Imagine the riding freedom you'll experience and extra confidence you'll have, knowing what the audience doesn't. Gap in the breach, men's riding thongs. They're not panties. They're man's panties. All right. And now, I can just hear the jingle to that, right? Like, stuck in the middle with you. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like that needs to come with some accompanying skin products, maybe some desitin or something like that. Uh, totally. Like that. What's that uh, monkey butt powder you get from Tractor <laughs> Supply, right? <laughs> That's good stuff, actually. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, oh well, goodness. I, I'm also proud to be the worldwide announcement that uh, Patrick has opened up an OnlyFans feet pics page called Horse Hobbit OnlyFans. If you're into the gnarled claw-like feet of a lifelong horseman and feet as hairy as a hobbit, this page is for you. Weekly content of these horsey hobbit feet on the farrier stand, picking up hay bales, and seductively slipping into $1,000 riding boots sockless look up horsey hobbit feet 
for the hairiest equestrian feet on OnlyFans, where you can be a fan for only nine ninety five a month. <laughs> hey man, vet right. bills and saddle fitting gets really expensive. Hey, I'm not knocking it. Do what you got to do, right? If I had the feet for it, <laughs> man. <laughs> if it if it makes dollars, it makes sense, buddy. <laughs> All right. Oh, good lord. Well, one we'll, we'll go since we, since we've just gotten a little less serious. Uh, one of I don't actually remember where I got. I think this might have been you talking on another podcast, but you had discussed, and I thought this was a, a brilliant thing to talk about, was how you like to use the Garoka in the midst of your cult starting. So why don't you tell us a little the bit Garocha. about that? The Garocha, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the Garocha, uh, that's, a, um, how do I want to call it? It's an old-time tool. Uh, sort of an antiquated tool. It, I shouldn't say it that way, though, because it's still in use today uh, in Spain and Portugal, the Iberian Peninsula, to manage cattle. And it's actually a tool that was used that predates roping. Okay, It wasn't until the conquistadors traveled to New Spain, that we now call Mexico, where the Aztecs taught them how to braid and rope. Okay, uh, That's when we started roping. But up until that point, they used the garocha, which is basically like a 13-foot-long skewer to manage cattle. They could split off cow-calf pairs if they were working in the field. They can manage the bulls. They still uh, manage the bulls behind the scenes of the bullfights and things like that, regardless of how you feel about the bullfighting. I'm not a fan of it at all, but it, it's just understanding that that is still a thing in certain places in the world. And behind the scenes, uh, they do still oftentimes use the garocha to guide the bulls to to you know kind of push them from one place to another think about it like if you've got the last rope uh tied to your saddle horn kind of like slapping your coils to make a little bit of noise to send uh you know to move something around that sort of thing that's very much like what they would do with that and there's more tradition there that folks can look up if they're interested in it but um i think it's a really interesting thing to use absolutely in the young horses process in the young horses training process there's a lot of times even on the first ride well where i'll ride over and pick up a garocha because i've got several of them all over the all over the facility here uh, because i just think it's a fun tool to use but i'll use them even for the young horses because if we think about when we're when we're starting a young horse under saddle or maybe we're not but we're working with a horse in general and we say turn your haunches to the left turn your forehand to the right, turn your whatever. If they don't really have a basis for understanding why we're doing that, they often have the question, yeah, but why, right? And when we start working with a garocha, it makes more sense. It's a clear perspective to the task for them, okay? It's sort of like when I was with Ray, we, Ray had a pretty simple philosophy. Day one, they cost you money. Day two, they hold their own. Day three, they're on the payroll. Like most of those young horses that we started with Ray on day one, we were riding out. We're riding out of the arena on their first ride. Day two, you're starting to rope off of them. You're starting to follow other, you know, stock around. Day three, you're actually roping young horses. You're ponying other young horses off of them. That's a generalization. I'm not saying that we did that with all of them. Um, and it was certainly not presented in a 
fast, rushed, hurried way. It was basically you presented in a way that it's a simple conversation for them to begin to have, because again, talking about that whole sympathetic versus parasympathetic idea. But the garocha is very much like a replacement for that, where maybe you don't have cattle to follow, right? So it's not something for that horse to hook on to following the tracks of a steer ahead of them or something like that. Maybe you're not in a position where you can go out on the trail for the first ride for various reasons. Maybe it's just not safe, right? Or maybe you don't have the trails available to you. Working with a garocha is a great way to give the horse a little bit of a purpose. It's a visual. I think about it like another obstacle. Like you see a lot of people that do these obstacle challenges with their horses. I think those are great from the perspective of they give the horse a visual for what the task is, right? And that's something that Ray used to talk about all the time as well, is he would say that the job of the cutting horse, the job of the barrel horse is a job they can see. But the job of the reining horse and the job of the dressage horse, and of course I'm paraphrasing and generalizing, so this isn't probably exactly the way he said it, but he would say the job of the reining horse and the job of the dressage horse is not one that they can see, so they have to tune more into the rider, right? To understand what that job actually was. So using the garocha is a way to give that horse a visual. Why do I need to turn my haunches to the left? Well, because the garocha is over here on my right. And if I'm making this circle and I don't turn my haunches, I'm going to bump it, right? Why do I need to turn my shoulders to the to the right and not just bulge on a 40-acre meadow-sized circle? Uh, well, because if I do, I'm going to hit my head into that pole, you know? And, of course, all this is in super slow motion just at the walk. Um, but having that visual perspective for the horse is really helpful when it comes to the foundation training for them to understand the why when it comes to what we ask for them to do, when it comes to the basic simple ideas of isolating haunches and forehand. Um, but as well, even for a horse that's got more of an education, giving the rider a garocha is a really helpful tool. If you think as a rider that you ride good circles, pick up a garocha and you'll find out how awful your circles are. We'll find out really quick that we're riding eight meter amoebas, right? <laughs> not really circles uh, because the pole will not lie, right? And it will tell you what is that radius of that circle? Well, right here, it's the length of that pole. What else have you got, you know? And it also handicaps the rider. So I love that when it comes to our dressage riders, our English riders, who are used to riding around with two hands and thinking that they're operating off of their seat when they're really micromanaging with the reins and not realizing it. You put the reins in one hand and give them a pole in the other. They are severely handicapped with the aids that they have. So what they have left is the truth of how much their horse is actually following their seat. So I love the Garocha for a multitude of reasons. Uh, that last thing you talked about, I was going to bring up if you didn't, because I, I, I think that's one of those, those big, I would call it a problem in the dressage in the English world is the lack of awareness of how much micromanaging they do with those reins and you take them away and, and, and they can get lost. One of the practices that I have, and you may won't be one of the, the few that appreciates this and doesn't think I'm crazy, but it, when I get new riders in for lessons, Typically, their first three lessons are in the round pin on one of my horses, bridleless, and they have to earn the bridle around here. And so they learn to use their seat 
and to use their legs and to, when they you have the confidence of i can sit and slow the horse down i can even back him up and do all of these things and trot figure eights and stuff like that without the reins now mm-hmm. i find it, it gives them an appreciation of how little they really need to use the bridle when they get on and now it can become the fine-tuning adjustment tool that it's meant to be and not the thing i'm balancing 30 percent of my weight on as i ride all the time (laughs) so it's not a third stirrup right Yeah, yeah exactly well you've talked a little bit about some of the different breeds that you've ridden and i've been privileged to ride a lot of different breeds as well i haven't done near as much time on the iberian warm blood side of things as you have but i have definitely i have a lusitano myself and i've I've played with some of those horses i'm curious what your thoughts are in the differences between them because i've i've really seen the mentalities i feel are quite different um so like thoroughbreds and all they really you know you could kind of stereotype them there are of course exceptions to every thing that proved the rule but but how would you characterize some of those breeds and the differences in between them oh goodness so and i love that you've got a lusitano that's fantastic that would be pretty high on my list of favorite breeds there if somebody was to say you know pick a breed it would it would at this point the uh, the majority of horses that i ride i would say that i've got more experience recently riding on the lusitanos and the andalusians um, and when we think about those as breed types, they were originally, no, I'm not a historian of the breeds, right? So I'm, I'm only going to speak to my awareness at this point, not not anything that's wrote uh, as, a, as a rule that someone needs to follow. But my understanding is that the Lusitano and the Andalusian at once were the Iberian horse, right? The Iberian Peninsula before Spain and Portugal split, right? And Portugal as a country is is very small in comparison to the entire Iberian Peninsula. So those horses remained primarily bullfighting horses, where going up into Spain, what became the Andalusian horse, they needed to be the everything horse, the plow horse, the school bus, the bullfighting horse, the, you know, they needed to be all sorts of things. So within that, you see more uh, differentiation of temperament and things like that. Um, It's really interesting also because in Spain and Portugal, one of the most common themes that I've heard is that the Andalusian is the lady's horse, they would say, basically meaning that he would be a little bit more docile. Now, you and I have both worked with enough horses and likely plenty of your listeners have worked with enough horses to understand that you can't pigeonhole any breed into any set specific thing. I grew up with Egyptian Arabians. I've seen those horses at all ends of the spectrum, some that I would put my kid on and some that I wouldn't climb on on myself, right? So every breed has that deviation in there. But I think that that's an interesting thing that they talk about as a deviation there. And when you talk about more kind of the hot-blooded horse, I think really what that comes down to is historically on the Iberian Peninsula. And again, I'm not necessarily a historian on this. I think it's interesting. And so I've done quite a bit of research into it. But the Muslims ruled the Iberian Peninsula. I can't remember the years early on. And so there was a lot of Arabian influence with the horses on the Iberian Peninsula. And I think that that serves us well to bring a lot of the hotness that you can kind of sometimes see attributed to the breeds, where more of what you see as the warm blood horses that was more uh kind of plow horses cart horses carriage horses right and so we see horsemanship differentiate 
right? Because one, you're working on the sensitivity of one, and one, you're working to, to help build more sensitivity in. And I'm totally generalizing here, and I hope that I'm not offending anybody when I say it this way, because it's, it's just a, a generalization. And so then when we look at things like our thoroughbreds, those are more of the hot-blooded horses, right? Versus the cold-blooded horses that we refer to as our, our draft breeds, right? And so for your listeners that are more into the quarter horses, right, that tends to be a little bit more of a mix of both, right? And then when we have our appendix horses, that puts a little bit more thoroughbred into it, which generally speaking, brings a little bit more heat to the blood, so to speak. Yeah. And now I kind of lost your question. Where were we going from there? I totally went off track. (laughs) Yeah. And and I did want to add, I I think in with the Andalusians and Lusitanos are the pre- horses uh and it's my understanding they were all the same breed until like the 1960s or something and then it kind of became if you were on this side of the river you're now this and 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 that's kind basically of they, yep. yeah differentiated yeah um, yep. stud books got closed and yes absolutely yeah. so so mm-hmm. i was just uh wondering how you would characterize some of those i was also going to leave you you kind of already opened the door into some of the different <laughs> famed schools of dressage so like the german school the French school and how at the times when those were coming, Europe wasn't like a place you necessarily freely traveled between. It was way more bordered off. And so the horses that were in Germany were the horses that were in Germany. That was what you were working with. And so that lends itself, in my opinion, to why that school is the way that it is where the french had a more refined type horse a little hotter blooded horse and sort of became a more sensitive if you want to use that word type of the school where they were thinking a little more about lightness and not necessarily this horse could be sausage this afternoon if things don't go well you know (laughs) so Mm -hmm. so i'm just kind of curious how you categorize and organize that in your head in particular like You've, you have worked with a bunch of stock horses as well as some of these breeds. Like I have found that particularly the cowbred quarter horses, those horses mentally and emotionally mature very, very quickly. So when we get into them at two and three-year-olds, we can actually put a lot of pressure on them and they can handle it and we can push them quite hard, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing would be up to your discretion and exactly how that's done, but they can tolerate it quite well. Generally mm-hmm. I have found as I've worked with like the Lusitanos and I've done some Lusitanos, Mandalusians, a couple of a little bit of sort of the whole mix. I find that they tend to come along and progress relatively slowly in my mind, but I haven't, they they're steady about it. They just aren't in a hurry about it. It, it you know, I will, it's a little slower going down the road. Now I haven't worked with tons of them. And maybe if I had a few hundred under my belt, I would understand them a little bit better and the road would smoothen out. And, you know, not that I really only had one that was really any kind of trouble at all, but so I'm not saying they're difficult horses. They, I would just say they are slow. You you don't make rapid progress with them in my experience. Have you found that to be true or or not. Whereas like the thoroughbred. I think there's a differentiation there in how and when we approach it. That's something that I think is really interesting. So when you um, 
I'm not going to say that I think you're wrong in that in that thought process, but one of the things that I've noticed as being pretty consistent with my teachers and with a lot of the schools that I've seen in Spain and Portugal is those horses generally stay out in the fields until a, until they are four year olds, right? So where where we come in with, and again, I'm it's the the king's we. I'm generalizing with this. Uh, we start our quarter horses on average at about their two year old year, two to three year old. Right. The uh, Portuguese and Spanish horses generally are in the field until they're four. And again, that's a generalization, too, because everything adjusts to the, you know, to society Mm -hmm. as it modernizes and things like that. But one of the things that I've found is that because they wait that length of time and they're out in the fields, they come in. Obviously different physically. You know, because they've got two years more of growth before they've actually had interaction. Right. Uh, And again, totally generalizing. But what I find with them is that they do tend to start working on collection sooner. And the reason is the physical structure of the body. Okay, the physical structure of the body says that in order to carry the rider, we need to develop these other muscles sooner. Okay, so like I had a discussion with Rafael Soto from the Royal School in Spain, who was my teacher, my primary teacher the first year that I went there as a student. And it was in his philosophy, if I'm remembering the conversation correctly, it was in his philosophy that if you don't start working on the Piaf with a horse before they're seven, they won't have the muscle development to make it an easy thing for them to do. And I thought that was really interesting talking about, you know, how the structures of the body grow and growth plates and, you know, all the things that we get into. So uh, I think it is different. And I think there's a diff- there's a difference in maybe how we might work with them to help achieve the same task. So we might be starting half steps, which develops into Piaf, with an Iberian horse at their within their first year of riding. And again, I'm just generalizing, right? Within their first year of riding, where with the quarter horse, maybe you might have waited for several years because he was, as Ray used to call one, square enough, right? He was solid enough over all four legs that he could carry the rider without you being worried about the weakness. Whereas these other horses, potentially, uh, you had to do more on the calisthenics side of things to help them build up to that strength. So we're talking about work in hand. Right. And that's where my addiction to the work in hand comes in. So we're talking about work in hand to to calisthenically build the horse's muscles before the encumbrance of the rider so that then they're able to carry the rider in a better way. Okay, let's get into the in hand stuff a little bit. And I'll be uh, totally candid here. I have done pretty much none of that sort of work. I mean, I've done you had I I joined you on. um, as a participant on your live uh, course that you did the other night on the difference between groundwork and in hand. And I've done a lot of groundwork. I mm-hmm. I would actually consider myself kind of a minimalist as far as groundwork goes. I do as much as I need to, but not really a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. I think that it, I think some people do way more than they, they should. Um, I want that mm-hmm. as an avenue I can approach if let's say later my horse gets hurt or something and I need to build him back up or things take a turn and they get a little sour. 
if I haven't done tons of groundwork, I now have another avenue I can approach the horse from and maybe help that relationship mm -hmm. or help to physically. So I, I think you can actually do damage doing too much groundwork, but I really do no in-hand work. Um, and here I have this Lusitano and, and maybe I, I should be, although I have to say he's, he is like riding an elephant. He is a tank. So <laughs> lack of <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's great. Yeah. But so with the in hand work, this is one of the thoughts that I've had, I guess some similar to my thoughts on the equitation thing. I don't think that you can, how would I put this? I would, I think that the in hand work is more a supplement to not a, not a replacement for. So I, I didn't get into this with Nishan, but it was one of the things that he had said when I had him on the podcast that, you could take a horse all the way up to the Grand Prix level with in-hand work and have tempi changes and all of that stuff on there. I don't think that that means that you now climb into the saddle and all of those skills are at your disposal. I don't think having it in hand is the same thing as having it in saddle. Now, maybe it doesn't take you years to get there, right? But, but the horse isn't used to, as you put it, the encumbrance of the rider, the feel of the legs on their barrel, all of these different things are now something that is new and gets thrown into the mix and has to be factored in and gotten used to and gotten comfortable with until it's mastered and now you and the horse are one thing. So I, I don't feel like the in-hand work fully gets you there, I guess. And maybe maybe no one's really claiming that it does, but I feel like sometimes it it's it's pushed in that way almost as a replacement for. So I'll leave it to you now. Go ahead. <laughs> I love the way that you said that. And what I would say is that in my experience, um, the ability would be there, but the skill might not because of exactly what you said. They wouldn't understand the leg aid. They wouldn't understand the seat aid because they haven't felt it. Um, and if we haven't ridden one and we've done all of that up to the Grand Prix, uh, and I'm not saying that Nishan's wrong uh, because you, you can, right? But what they're and and what those horses would be relying on would be the position of the handler on the ground and the feel from the rain and the position and aids from the whip. They wouldn't if you hadn't ridden them, they obviously they wouldn't understand the seat of the rider or the legs of the rider. So there would be uh, there would still be a learning curve for the translation of that or for the transition of that. Uh, one of the things that I find really helpful, let me take a step back. One of the things that I will delineate is people ask, when do you start the in-hand work? For me, as a generalization, I don't start in-hand work until a horse is confident carrying a rider at all three gates wearing a snaffle bridle. Okay. Now, there's a reason. I'm not saying that you can't do it sooner. You certainly can. But my reason for that is confidence and consistency. Okay. And, and I, would, I would go so far as to say honor from our perspective of telling the horse, this is what this means. This is what this other thing means. So let's say you're climbing on a young horse that's not had any in-hand work. 
he gets spooked. You have to bend him with the bridle. You have to guide him with the halter if you're riding him with the halter or whatever whatever the gear is, right? He gets spooked. You guys get out of balance. He negotiates it. You navigate it together. You move on. Everything's fine, right? Okay, build from there. Let's say you educate a horse in hand, in the bridle. To where he understands fully well how to function his body at all those gates and in all of the lateral positions and within these balances and then you climb on and he gets scared of something because he's not used to you being up there and you get out of balance and you'll you pull too much on one rein or you squeeze too much with one leg or something like that now he says whoa wait a second you lied to me you told me that all everything was perfect as it came through the bridle, right? And now we've had this deviation where things aren't perfect. I think, and maybe it's just in the back of my mind that I'm a little worried that I might lie to one in that sense, in air quotes. Um, I think that we could run into problems of trust later on if we don't have one confident carrying the rider first before we introduce our idea of what I would call perfection in the contact perfection in the balance and perfection in the position of the body when it comes to the type of movements that we'd be asking for in hand so that's that's why i wait until one has a foundation right and now foundation can mean different things at different levels right so for me it's he's got to be confident carrying the rider walk drop canner right or gallop rein back whatever whatever your idea of the primary gates are and as a generalization, also out on varied terrain. I want to make sure that if I make a move above him, it's not going to scare him, right? I want to be able to make a mistake and have that horse have a sense of humor enough to say, that's because he's human and humans are kind of dumb. And I know that I can manage and I don't have to be worried about that, right? But if I never teach him, because let's face it, humans are dumb, right? We get on a horse, and when was the last time that maybe don't answer this, Daniel? But when was the last time we crawled around on all fours and made gates like a horse does, right? We're bipedal, we're not quadrupedal. So it's easy for us to get deviated from the center of that saddle and out of position and out of motion from the horse, particularly when things go sideways, right? Or when things head south, or however you want to call that. Um, and I think if we do enough in hand work with a horse before we ever climb on him, we're leading him to a perfectionist ideal without helping him to understand that humans are, are fallible. I like that. I, I like that a lot. Uh, and, and it seems to kind of go in with my thought on it being sort of an addendum, not a replacement for it's just, you know, we can, we can have a student who is both an athlete and academically successful and they can pursue both, mm -hmm. both of those tracks, right? They don't have to be one yes. or, or the other necessarily. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, now that said, and uh, you know, what is it? The, um, the plural of anecdote is not scientific data or whatever, whatever that expression is. Um, one, I'll just give this story to talk about the power of the in-hand work. I had a student a couple of years ago who was um, several months pregnant when I was working with one of her young horses and we were getting him going, we were getting him confident and, and we put enough rides on him for him to be very confident in the arena and pretty confident out on the trail at all three gates. And she said, look, I'm at a place in my pregnancy, I'm not going to be able to ride him. 
Okay. That's being realistic, right? Being safe and realistic. What are some exercises that I can do? And she admitted, I hate groundwork. I hate in-hand work, blah, 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 right? But she said, what are some exercises that I can do with him in the interim until I can get back in the saddle that can help keep things developing? So we gave her a set of what I would consider to be our basic in-hand work, okay? So let's say that this was late in winter, early in spring, right? And then I saw her in this horse later again in the fall, late summer, early fall, okay? So now she's gone through pregnancy, ready to start riding again, okay? And I'm working with this horse in the clinic and did a little work in hand, climbed on him, and the horse was so much stronger, so much more understanding of the aids as they came from the bridle and even as they came from the seat and things like that. And I said, I don't know who you've had working with him in the interim, but they really did an amazing job. This horse feels like he's at least a year ahead of where he was when we left him off. And he was only, you know, I mean, he was several months, but not, not a year, right? And she said, all I've done is the in-hand work. So the horse had enough of an education of understanding what the rider's aids felt like. But then the in-hand work built enough strength otherwise that then everything felt easier to him when the rider got back on. Okay. So again, back to that idea of the calisthenics, right? Like I, I think about in-hand work as that all the time. If we can't do a push-up, we're not going to go to the gym and do a bench press, right? So it, the calisthenics are really important. We've got to be able to do the push-ups before we do the bench press. And the, the in-hand work is like calisthenics for the horse without the encumbrance of the rider. And if we do that enough, and we can, if we design the program specifically, we can do enough to strengthen parts of the body so that then when the rider climbs on, the horse at, at the very least says, oh, I understand the muscles you're trying to talk to, and they're strong enough to do this work. I like that. Yep, that's absolutely. And I think I, I am more recently, last few years, starting to open up to these thoughts of the physical exercise for the horse and the building up and all of that. I think maybe mm -hmm. as a human, we have to reach a certain age where maybe we have peaked physically and now we're realizing we've lost a step or two and we have to work a little harder. <laughs> Just to be able to do what we used to do without having to work at all before yep. we can appreciate how much the physical component really matters and factors in there and yes. and start to realize that that's true with the horse as well. Exactly. Yep. I think that's so true. We kind of had talked a little bit about this with the broker pole and some of the riding in one hand, but are you at all familiar with the working equitation world? Have you ever thought uh, absolutely. Of playing around and that looks like it could be a whole lot of fun it really does it is a whole lot of fun that that is uh what's the expression more fun than a barrel of monkeys the the working equitation is super fun i teach a lot of clinics for work i shouldn't say a lot but i i teach a fair amount of clinics for working equitation it, it is very much the way that i describe it is it's dressage with a visual purpose for the horse so like when we talked about the garocha and we talked about the cow horses and the barrel horses, being able to see the job, the working equitation definitely brings in that factor for the horse that they can see the job that they're doing. And, and it definitely combines really in the full phases of the, the working equitation, 
it combines the dressage, the cow working, and the obstacles. It's it's fantastic stuff. Yeah. I used to do some judging for obstacle challenges and the way that that works, it's on a scale of one to ten and everybody starts with a five. And I would I would rarely give above an eight. I think I got known as kind mm-hmm. of a tough judge. And so one day I, the Simon Cowell of judging a little bit, but then I posted a video of Pedro Torres doing work in equitation in one of their groups. Mm-hmm. And I said, this is what a 10 would look like. If any of you were, were curious now, do you think you're approaching yes. that? I see there has to be room for <laughs> a level above where you're at. And what if you did it without a bridle? You know, I mean, like there, there's, there's, there's right. got to be room for increased levels here. So, absolutely. Uh, so if anybody doesn't yeah, know, yeah, absolutely. I'm, yeah. Uh, if anybody doesn't know what I'm talking about with working equitation, that's what I would advise you to do. Go to YouTube and look up Pedro Torres or John St. Ryan, uh, either one. And, and yes, that's some pretty cool, pretty fun stuff. Um, absolutely. Yeah. John is great with that. And Pedro, Pedro Torres, uh, he's fantastic with that. And I, I'm just going to go out on a limb and guess that the video that you posted was him on a gray horse named Oxidado. Mm-hmm. Um, so if anybody's looking up that video, uh, I actually had the pleasure of taking a couple lessons on that horse Oh wow! And, with Pedro and that it was, it, you were definitely riding a Ferrari, you know, is, is fantastic stuff. And that gives the rider so much more of an appreciation for what do I need to bring home to my horse? You know, how, how, where do I need to be? How much do I need to understand to bring this back to my horse? So, yeah. Absolutely. Um, I guess I wanted to talk with you a little bit about Nuno. Uh, before we get into that, I, I wanted to bounce another thing off of you that I had uh, spoken with Nishan about. I have heard, and he didn't think, he hadn't heard this. So I don't know. I think I got this from one of the Lipazon shows or the, the Spanish riding school or something like that. But it, it was basically that the old masters believed that mares had a different center of gravity from stallions and geldings. And so there were certain maneuvers that were not trained to mares at all, uh, like the airs above the ground, the Levad, things like that. Have you heard that or would you believe that to be true or in your experience, that's absolutely not true or, or what? I don't, I really don't recall where I got that phone, but I remember like the moment it was said, I've just, that stuck out in my head as I don't, I don't think that's right. But anyway, what are your thoughts? That's, mm, hmm, that's really interesting. Culturally. Um, and again, just speaking from my experience, culturally in Spain and Portugal, they ride the stallions. They rarely geld anyone. And the mares are baby machines. <laughs> um, I, I don't want to make that sound negative, but that's kind of culturally, that's a lot the way that it is. It's only been very recently um, that they've started riding the mares. Um, so I would, I don't know. Okay. That's what I'm going to say. I don't know. I don't uh yeah, that, that's fair I, I don't, 
culturally they just didn't they just didn't ride the mares nearly as much not to say that they wouldn't ride them at all but they didn't ride them nearly as much and they certainly weren't the performance horses and things like that so it's it's a very very like i want to say within the last decade honestly it's that recent that they've started riding the mares more and and i know as many i would say i know as many mares with great piaffs which is an introductory air above the ground as I know geldings and stallions with them. So I, but that's an introductory air. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm going to say I would need a whole lot more information. And I think that that may be an assumption just based on a cultural precedent. Maybe so. So let me ask you this. Within humans, there is actually a difference there. So there are a few little physical tests. Um, I was telling Nishan about this one. If you stand arm, arm's length away from a wall and you place a chair, like a dining room chair with a back, with its back to the wall, and then you mm-hmm. bend over and put your forehead on the wall and pick the chair up, a man will not be able to stand up. You think you can. You'll watch somebody do it and go, oh, yeah, that's no problem. I could easily do that. You will be locked. You will not be able to stand up. And a woman can. And there are a few other exercises. Like there's one if you get kind of on all fours on the ground and uh, something about crossing your arms or something, a woman can do that and sit straight back up and a guy will try it and he's face burst into the carpet. So there, and we all know you can look at the pelvis of a skeleton of a man and a woman and tell whether it was a man or a woman. And that well, right. that's what causes women to walk a certain way that we find alluring and, and all of that. I'm not aware. And I'm not going to say that I, I factually know. I've just never heard that there is a differentiation like that in the pelvis of a horse to, to any degree that would actually make a difference like we see in, in humans. Um, so I just wanted to bounce mm-hmm. that off. Of you well, and that's interesting it. too, because like with the with humans, uh, female pelvis tends to have a more naturally anterior tilt, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which would lend one could assume to more tension there to be supportive, where a man's back tends to be more straight, right? So then there would be, I don't know, I don't want to get no. too much into the physical side of that stuff, but. That's an interesting question, and that would certainly be one to to dive into as even if just as a point of curiosity. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I've always kind of been a little tickled by it. Maybe I'll get uh, Gerd Hirschman or one of those one day on here and and, and find the answer because there's got to be somebody mm-hmm. out there that knows exactly what's going on there. So absolutely, let's get into. To Nuno, he is hands down my favorite of the contemporary masters, and of course, I haven't had the opportunity to work with his his contemporary his former apprentices the way that that you have. But there are enough videos and stuff of him riding, and and I mean, I love watching. He's just sitting up there, relaxed and calm. He's got his hat on. He's riding in one hand with a little cigar. Looks like he's thinking about going fishing this afternoon or or something like that. His horses are as relaxed, no dripping foam out of the mouth. They're always a little bit ahead of the vertical and and, and beautiful. Everything that dressage should be, in my opinion. So, so tell us a little bit about some of your connections there and this Portugal and Spain trip that you make every year, and, and then we'll get into some of the other offerings that you have within your business. So. Cool, yeah. So I've been fortunate. Like, Of course, I didn't get the opportunity to work with Nuno personally, 
Um, he passed before I was knee high to a grasshopper, as far as I understand it. And uh, I have been lucky, though, to work with Mark Russell and to work with Bettina Drummond, who spent quite a bit of time with Nuno. Um, and to be perfectly honest, she would be more one to speak to about him as a horseman and him personally, you know, because I haven't had the opportunity to work with him. But I've had the opportunity to work also with uh, Senor Luis Valenza. Uh, of the Valencia Equestrian Academy, and that's where I go in Portugal each year, and I take groups of students there. Uh, and he was a principal apprentice to Nuno for uh, a long time. And so as far as I understand, we get a lot of what's really close there. He has a lot of personal photos of Nuno working horses in his office and things like that. It's really great to to look at those and to talk about stories that came from those photos and things like that. Um, but from, from the stories that I understand, Nuno was a consummate horseman and he was always studying and it didn't matter. Uh, it seems from the stories that I've heard, it didn't matter what the background was. He was studying it. So I've heard Bettina talk about him studying Steinbrecht, who was German. Right. Uh, whereas the big claim is that Nuno was more on the French side, Boucher and Garnier. So and there's there's always there always seems to be this um, kind of theoretical, dogmatic at odds of are you French? Are you German? Are you Spanish? Are you Portuguese? Are you blah, blah, blah? Are you one of the bloody Americans that can't decide what we want to be? So you're. Uh, chocolate covered banana flavored pepperoni enchilada right like you're all the things <laughs> thrown together and and you don't know what you are uh, <laughs> but the the biggest what i can speak to my experience based on the folks that i've ridden with that have ridden directly with nuno is that there's a deep understanding of the horse and how it needs to function in the body to carry the rider in order to perform the movements that we're asking of them. Regardless of whether you would call it a German movement or a French movement or a Portuguese move, like regardless, it's about understanding where does that specific horse need to be. And that's the thing I think, and maybe I'm deviating off the question here, but that's the thing that I think is really important to think about when we talk about which school do you like the best, which school, what, what, type of dressage suits you best, right? Well, it's, you know, what were the Portuguese and the Spanish riding? Well, they were riding bullfighting horses, right? Those horses come out of the womb doing canter pirouettes, right? What, uh, what were the Germans riding? They were riding more, we could say, more the plow horses, the cold-blooded horses that started to get some hot blood influence, so they became the warm blood horses. So the body type, the body style, and the natural tendencies based on confirmation are going to be very different. So, of course, the style is going to be different, right? And then the French seem to have more of a thoroughbred type influence. They actually do a lot more jumping than the other schools do, which I think is super cool because I love to jump. Not that, I'm not saying I'm very good at it, but I enjoy it. And so their horsemanship is also different within all of that, but it's based on... I'm going to say the body style of the machine they're operating, right? Mm -hmm. To come at it from kind of a man perspective right there, which 
you know, I'm not much for mechanics necessarily, unless it's a body. I like to joke that if it doesn't wear hair, fur, fins, or feathers, I don't understand it. But, you know, if we think about if you're going to go drive a race car, you're probably not going to drive a Dodge Neon and try to go to a Formula One race, right? Like you're operating a machine that isn't built for that, right? So you would, dependent on the type of horse that's being used, the exercise is going to be different, right? And that's one of the things that I think is absolutely fascinating in the lessons that I've had and the conversations that I've had with Bettina Drummond, who I may be wrong, but it seems as though she's spent uh, uh, kind of the, the majority of the time with Nuno of all the people that we could talk about, all the people I've spent time with anyway, um, is you can have a lesson with her and she can break down like the first 15 minutes we were in the manner of Boucher and for the half an hour that followed, this was more in the Garnier style of how we got this same thing done and that sort of thing. She's fantastically sharp with uh, understanding and knowing the deviations of the same exercise operated slightly differently. And she's made a, a life study of that. And that's fascinating to me. And that's one of the things that just seems to really come up is the astuteness of the students. Uh, with that. And I've, one of the things that I've always tried to do is, is really be the best student that I possibly can be, because as much as I love to teach and I love to share what I know, I am most comfortable and most happy in a student role. One of the things that we, we kind of talked about earlier and said we would get into was contact. And this is one of those oh. subjects that I like to talk about. Yeah. This could be a, an episode all to itself, but what well, what would be some some tips you would give people or some of the most common issues that you see that could stand to be improved through the world of of riding in contact? <laughs> Gosh. Contact. That's such a interesting topic to get into because it seems that everybody has their own definition of contact. And I guess that's not a terrible thing because everybody's coming to it from wherever they happen to be in their understanding, right, at that moment. But when I think about contact, one of the things I want to think about, and, and we're talking specifically rain contact in this point, contact with the bridle, okay? And we're talking about it specifically from the dressage perspective. Dressage of any seat. So this would be as suitable for your working equitation as it would be for your Western dressage, as it would be for your gated dressage, as it would be for your more traditional or classical dressage. What I like to think about is the bit is much like the ballet bar. The ballet bar gives the ballerina a point of reference. It's not a bar to do pull-ups on, and it's not electrified to keep her afraid of touching it, or him afraid of touching it. So when we talk about contact with our horse, that's where I want to be. I want to feel like it's a point of reference and like the ballerina is seeking the contact with that as a point of reference. Can I shape my body and reach to that? Okay. And maybe that's too vague of a description, but that's really what I like to think about with that. Okay. And so when we see riders that are, I'm going to say, jabbing and jerking on the reins to say get off my hand get off my hand get off my hand that the horse is coming behind the bridle 
right? Which may or may not be behind the vertical, which is something that we mentioned earlier. It's basically if the horse is afraid of the contact of the bit, he's coming behind it, even if just emotionally, right? Um, then he's not going to be using his body in a way that's reaching to it. So a lot like you had mentioned, you referred to it as turtling, right? <laughs> you can cause contraction by jerking on the reins, right? Um, but if you're just a jerk at the reins, that that's like what is there as far as contact goes. But what we also don't want is like I part of me hates the expression having the horse on the bit because we see plenty of horses that are kind of like my daughter was in her first time of ballet doing pull-ups on the ballet bar, right? Mm -hmm. Like it wasn't a point of reference. It was something to pull her body up on, right? And we see that sometimes with horses too, where they're on the bit to the point where every ounce of their body weight is on that bit. Um, and that's not appropriate either because then they're simply just leaning. And we could talk about the biomechanics of how that works to where now the sternum is just diving to the ground. And the horse cannot help but be on the forehand because of the action, either from the rider or from the horse, right? But we want to really think about that horse lengthening the top line to reach to the bit. So that's why I prefer to the bit rather than on the bit mm -hmm. uh, to get that idea that the horse is reaching out. The horse is actively seeking that. And again, that the bit is the ballet bar as a point of reference and the rider's reins through our seat, through our hands, through our positioning, simply adjusts where the ballet bar hangs in front of the horse's chest, okay? But the idea is that the horse is still seeking that connection to the bit. I like that. I like that a lot. I, yeah, I, I can't stand watching people who are on the bit to the point where it looks like if they suddenly gave the horse slack, it would tip over and his nose would go into the dirt. He'd fall down. That's, yeah, Absolutely. Like that. A lot of times I relate our levels of dressage as uh, levels of ballroom dancing. Like for, for a young horse, for say an intro training level, first level horse, that would be like the kind of connection that if you were dancing a waltz with your dance partner, what kind of connection do you have there? right you neither one of you should be pushing or pulling each other but you have a soft connection together between your bodies right if you get up to the more high level now we're talking more about tango you can have a much more close intimate contact right and you can likely do more because of the addition of your partner like you look at fred astaire and ginger rogers ginger climbs a darn wall right because of what fred can be there to support but they're still not pushing or pulling each other in that sense right and that's more like our higher level collection work there right nobody's pushing and pulling but you can do more because of the framework of each other in those moments um and i think that that's important to think about also though when it comes to introducing the contact. So a lot of us from a Western perspective or foundational perspective, and I'm not trying, I'm trying not to pigeonhole anybody because again, I mean, we know I've come from both worlds, but um, in the foundation side of things, we say, okay, we hold until the horse softens and then you release, right? You throw away the contact kind of an idea. Well, now let's think about if we're trying to refine things and Daniel, if you and I are waltzing together, which would be interesting enough in itself. But if we're waltzing together and I feel like, and you feel like we've had a couple really good steps together, 
and I step back and break contact, what are you going to think? You're not going to think, wow, that was really great. You're going to think, what did I do wrong that now there's no contact? Where did that point of reference go? Right. Mm -hmm. So what I see as being a challenge when it comes to uh, first integrating or grafting this idea of having connection is that riders can sometimes too quickly then throw the horse away, which then becomes a balance issue in itself. Right. So we want to help the horse learn to find what we would refer to as their self carriage inside that connection, working up eventually to collection, which is much farther away than self carriage is uh, from a, you know, if we were thinking in a linear perspective. Uh, but when the horse finds that balance, we want to let him be there for a moment. Okay. Kind of like if you're, you didn't have training wheels on your kid's bike and you put them into balance, you put them into balance, and then you let go of the bike, what's going to happen? They're going to fall down, right? They're not going to learn anything from that. But you can hold delicately, right? And you can be there and stabilize so that they can find that balance and be in that balance. And then before they know it, they're cruising on their own. But that comes down to the tact of the rider, or in that case, the tact of the parent or the coach with the bicycle in their hand, right? So, it, it can be it can be a challenging thing to talk about, I think, uh, particularly if we haven't experienced it before. But then you've got the other side of it where it's the push me, pull you or I'm going to jab you with my spurs and I'm going to pull you back with my hands, you know, and that's that's not really contact either. That's just contortion and compression. Yeah, I, I always view it. I, I do start things out sort of in the I'm going to. I'm going to ask very softly. And when you yield to me, I release and so forth. Totally. And it sort of develops into I'm holding you a little bit more and a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But there's a balance there because if, if you don't hold enough, then we don't get the results that we need. And we're not developing the relationship. If you hold too much, then you can get them braced. You can totally avoid self-carriage. So there's always kind exactly. of this balancing act. And then then for me, because I'm trying to get a horse into a bridle and be riding them with lots of slack, there's then a weaning off of contact that takes place where they're then responsible for their own self-carriage and their own collection or, or more fully riding to the seat where, you know, maybe it, mm -hmm. maybe riding in contact, the bridle's 25% of the equation. When we get up to that level, now it's 5%, 1% until it's nothing right and that's sort of how i have viewed mm -hmm. i like the way that you describe self-carriage in there i i feel like that's something that we see a lot less often than we're told we see i don't think it's all that yes. common and and or the real parts of it. like i said we we very often see the rider balancing and if they let go the horse would fall down sort of thing that there there's too much totally. And and I think a horse can't get into self-carriage until you start to let go a little bit and give them more and more of the responsibility of maintaining the position without so much of the training wheels there, mm -hmm. uh, which again is kind of like the, the professional I was talking about in equitation where they can hold those, those poses, but they don't look forced. They don't look like they're constipated. There's, there's a relaxation and a purpose to the way that they're riding. Mm -hmm. it, it isn't crammed into a box one of the other things absolutely I well and i think it's important that we understand what self-carriage actually is right like i know 
when I was growing up and when I was young and early in my career with the foundation side of things, the Western horsemanship side of things. And again, I'm not trying to downplay any of it, but um, when you would talk about self-carriage, the thought was, well, the horse is just carrying himself, right? Which would mean that you can throw the slack away and he'll maintain what he's doing. That's not self-carriage. And I think that's where we run into a challenge with all the push me, pull you kind of stuff where self-carriage basically means that the horse has developed enough strength in the carrying muscles of their body that the weight of the rider does not deviate their natural balance in their basic gates at the very beginning of things. Okay. So like when we think about the horse and, and I use this analogy a lot whenever I teach lectures, but let's talk about the horse by himself in a natural balance. Let's say he's a naturally well-balanced horse at the trot. 50% of his weight is on the forehand. 50% of his weight is on the haunches. And he's operating in those diagonalized pairs, right? Now, when you put a rider on top, the horse carries two-thirds of the weight of the tack and the rider on the forehand and only one-third on the haunches. It's just the nature of how it operates. There's no deviation of that. Okay. When you, when you put that together, now the horse is more than 50% on the front end, right? The whole weight balance in total, he's more than 50% on the front end. So unless he's developed enough carrying power behind through the systematic schooling and gymnasticizing that you've done, unless he's developed enough strength to shift his own weight back because he's not shifting your weight back and he's not shifting the weight of the tack back because it's always two thirds on the front end, right? So he has to shift his own weight back in order to go back to that natural balance of 50-50 that we would call self-carriage. Now imagine for a second that horse is carrying himself in that 50-50 balance with the rider and the tack on and imagine, poof, you snap your fingers and the rider and the tack disappear the horse now has more weight because he doesn't have to compensate necessarily, right? But he's got more weight on the haunches than he does on the forehand. What would we call that? Collection, right? Mm -hmm. So the initial state of self-carriage is a horse being able to find collection within their own body. And this to me is where the in-hand work can be really helpful, right? To specifically isolate a hind leg to develop more strength and more, more, um, ability to articulate in the joints and things like that so that they can begin to carry more weight on the haunches so that then they can carry the weight of the rider and the tack without it deviating them heavier, heavier to the forehand, right? And there's uh, there's been studies done about the amount of weight shifting to the forehand uh, that puts more pressure on the front legs that causes navicular syndrome. And I believe it's something as simple as 2%, okay, which is not a lot of weight, that's less than the weight of a rider and tack on the horse, right? So essentially, if we're not riding toward collection, we are riding toward navicular because there's no middle ground if we're up there on the horse, right? As, as Charles DeConfey would say, there is no riding in neutrality. You're either building him up or you're breaking him down. So we got into breaching the subject of collection right there. And to me, that brings up another one of these areas where, where I feel there is 
a dichotomy in, in how things are described. So one of the, the foundational gates would be the canner. And anywhere you read stuff about the canner, it always takes the time to describe that it's a three-beat gate and, and so on and so forth. When you get into collection, however, and you truly achieve it, there are many, many, many times where it breaks down into a four-beat gate. So you mentioned like canner pirouettes a minute ago. Mm -hmm. I've watched lots of those in slow motion. I don't think that's possible to do without it being a four-beat gate. Uh, I think there are a lot of other maneuvers where that sort of thing is is exemplified. The horse, one of the ways I've I've heard collection described that I really, really like is that it is a lowering of the three major joints of the hind leg. So the horse, that's part of how they transfer weight. They, they flex those joints, which takes a tremendous amount of strength to be able to squat and hold that position. Mm-hmm. But when they do that and they start to do certain maneuvers, the diagonal pair of the canner breaks up and we get kind of hind foot, hind foot, front foot, front foot as it starts to hit. Mm-hmm. And the pirouette to me is the most readily understandable and most easy to see place where that happens so am i missing something in there or 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 what is it just understood that when you get more more complete and more complex that that that's going to break up and we're just not going to talk about it because the 4b canner is almost always described as a terrible thing this is and I think what they're generally mean there is what we would call a trope in the Western world where the horse is loping on the front end and kind of trotting on the front end and hasn't really committed to the canter. But on the other right. extreme of that, when we have a truly collected horse, we do still have a distinct four beat gait, but it is still, it's the ultimate canter if you want to think of it like that. So, so what would be your thoughts there? Mm-hmm. Am I just too nitpicky or, or what? No, I don't think you're being too nitpicky. I think that they're, they're, comes a place of great variance. Eventually, we're going to have 25 walks, 48 different trots, and 56 different canners, right? So one in particular that I'm a big fan of is the school trot, okay? Where a lot of people would say they don't even know what that is. They don't know what the school trot is. The school trot is a trot that is so dramatically slowed that the horse can no longer rely on kinetic energy. He has to rely specifically on the function of the stabilizing muscles and the balancing muscles. So we see a lot of horses that go around and they're trotting just because they were trotting and now they're still trotting and they're like an avalanche, right? And they're just going to keep on going because it kept on going and boy, they can't get stopped, right? So I love when Charles uh, DeCunfey refers to it as the difference between kinetic energy and cultured energy, right? So when we talk, so going into the, the, we talked earlier about the definition of words, right? When we describe a trot, we say that a trot is a two-beat gait with a period of suspension between the diagonalized pairs. When you get into a school trot, there is no period of suspension. When you have a Western jog, the difference between a trot and a jog is that the jog does not have a moment of suspension. But that does not make it a broken diagonal gait. It's still diagonal pairs. Okay. If you watch like when when 
I was really into coaching the Western dressage. And when those organizations were getting started, I was really getting into the, the discussions with those groups about that, where you have what we'd refer to as a maximum jog stride, where if you look at a picture of those horses, hind feet, that front foot is ready to lift off the ground. And that hind foot is right there up underneath it. Right. And the horse would have to have a little more power to create the suspension phase so that there was suspension and not tearing off your shoes, essentially. Okay. So that's the differentiation there between the trot and the jog is that there's no suspension phase in the jog where there should be a suspension phase in the trot. Now, saying that, slow down enough footage of dressage horses and tell me how many of them are actually jogging, not trotting. Fair enough. A true trot with suspension is hard to sit. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying like, I'm, I'm not trying to say one's better than the other. They're just different. Right. So in the school trot, this, the trot is dramatically slowed to the point that the horse is so slow that he has the opportunity to sink into his joints in the movement. There wouldn't be suspension in that. You'd still be looking for activity though which is what makes it look different than the Western displeasure jog where the horse is lamely tripping along, right? I probably pissed somebody off right there, didn't I? That's okay. They deserve it. Okay. <laughs> More stories about that that maybe we shouldn't talk about publicly. But anyway, uh, so that's the differentiation is that we still want activity. We just don't want speed. Right. And so that's we would call that like the lowest form of energy and speed. And then the lowest form of speed, but the highest energy would be the Piaf. OK, where the horse is still or nearly still right, creeping forward very, very incrementally, very, very little and still trotting in place. OK, where you still wouldn't have suspension because you can't have suspension in those models necessarily right so going into the canter talking about what you were talking about there we have also a school canter the difference in canter and lope english and western the difference in canter and lope is that the lope does not have a suspension phase the canter is defined as a three beat gait with a moment of suspension where the footfall phases are outside hind diagonal pair inside front moment of suspension then outside hind diagonal pair inside front okay in the lope, you can have those three beats, but you don't have the suspension. That doesn't necessarily make it a four-beat canter, okay? Uh, it just means that there isn't enough push, okay? The idea of suspension is that you have to have enough propulsion, okay, or impulsion. You have to have enough push to bring airtime, okay? Now, you can also slow down more to the point where you become a four-beat gait, okay? The four-beat canter. Now, when we look at the Western displeasure horses, when we talk about the troping, the reason that that is a four beat is because the, the deviation is there that the diagonal pair is broken. Okay. The school and, and there's not, uh, there's not the activity. Okay. In the school canter, you also lose the suspension phase, but you keep the activity right now in the pirouette your aim comes pretty close. You're still looking at that suspension where the horse is potentially lifting from the haunches. So collected canter into pirouette. Okay. But now the question is, why do we have a hind foot landing before a front foot? Okay. 
this takes us into a slightly different conversation that's part of the same vein where we talk about advanced placement, okay? Diagonalized advanced placement. And you'll hear some people talk about positive DAP or negative DAP, okay? The displeasure side of the lobe is negative DAP. The front end is landing before the back end, okay? So that's saying that we're considerably more on the forehand than we are on the haunches, okay? The opposition of collection. When we talk about positive diagonalized advanced placement, that would be where the hind leg lands before the front leg. And you'll see this in some trot work, okay? We can talk about how that takes away from the purity of the gait, okay? I don't really get into that discussion a whole lot because yes, it's not pure in the gate as the gate is defined, but does that necessarily mean that it's negative? I don't think so in every case. I think if we talk about hypermobility maybe of some horses, then yes, we could be talking about that being a negative thing. But in your canter pirouette, if you keep a true three beat gate in the canter pirouette, it becomes very flat because the horse isn't folding underneath himself enough to lift and roll, uh, roll. I guess maybe roll would be the right a way to think about it, you know, kind of dolphining in and out of the water, so to speak, right? Mm -hmm. If you're properly dolphining, if you're properly rolling in that canter pirouette, of course the hind is going to land first because he's carrying more weight back there. So that's where we talk about it being the positive diagonalized advanced placement. You do get a lot of purists that will say, yeah, but now it's not 3B. Well, no, no, it's not because it's a pirouette. It's not a spin. You can get a canter spin that will be three beats and it will be much more flat, not nearly as elevated. It's Well, let me say on that, there's there are two spins. There's a trotting spin and a loping spin. And mm -hmm. the vaqueros would be done for the loping. So compared to the trotting spin, which is what we actually see in raining, the loping spin is much mm -hmm. hoppier, but it's less hoppy than a pirouette. Yes. So, mm -hmm. um, yep. Absolutely. And that would take you closer to the to the purity of the canter in that hopping spin. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. They just lose the the uh, activity of the hind in that they're they're staying grounded rather than then picking up and, and moving. Bingo. And there can be a couple reasons for that, right? They can they can lose the ability to carry behind or they can lose the energy to maintain if they were carrying behind. Uh, so then there's a there's a strength issue that comes into that and an endurance issue depending on what you're doing. For sure. Yeah. So one other thing, well, I've got a couple other things. I guess we'll stick with the gate stuff for now. In your... Mm. groundwork versus in hand work i i was absolutely eaten up with the spoon you talking about the rain back and differentiating it into a completely separate gate and one that needed to be treated like mm. a gate and improved like a gate and so forth this is probably the biggest what i would call a problem or or a real um, opposition i have with dressage is the lack of backing horses up that that is in there or the lack of appreciation for it. And to me, it is such an important aspect. And particularly if we're talking about strengthening and conditioning a horse that, that backing them up just adds so much strength to the hindquarters and the loin and the ability to carry. 
Uh, it's like a cheat code. And I've, I have never understood how dressage had not figured that out and incorporated it. <laughs> uh, and I know there are some. Uh, here, here was another question I was going to have for you is sort of the difference between classical and what we might call modern uh, show dressage. So all of the people that I've had on here so far have been classical dressage people, which I, I respect and appreciate. The modern show dressage is almost like rodeo to me and that I can't hardly watch it because there's just so much going on there. I disagree with that. You know, it's, it's hard for me to, to watch. So, so on the rain back, would you get into some of your thoughts on that and the importance of it and how you are treating it as a completely separate gate for your, your purposes? Yeah, absolutely. Good. Yes. Let's start with Rainback. <laughs> so, uh, yes, the Rainback is a natural gate that the horse has. It's just not a common natural gate that the horse exhibits. Just like walking backwards is a natural gate for the human, but it's not a common gate for the human. Right. And there is actually I had a student uh, last year, maybe two years ago, um, who had heard me talk about the rain back as a gate and how therapeutic it can be for the horse. And she gave me a printout study that they've done on people walking backwards and how beneficial it is for low back pain and, um, and several different things, but the low back pain was the big part that's sticking out to me right now in my remembrance of the article. Um, so they use it as a therapeutic exercise for people. It's a natural gait that people have. It's just one that we don't use very frequently. So we tend to get away from it and then we lose the therapeutic benefit of it. And when it comes to the rain back with our horses, I tend to find, generally speaking, I would say our dressage riders say, well, I don't need it until third level second level, whatever, right? And they've, they've changed where it is. Um, and there used to be a swinging where you'd come backward and then you'd go forward a few strides and then you'd come backward a few strides and then you'd go forward again. So there was a swing to it, right? And I believe that they've completely taken that out. Um, because, mostly because it's so damn difficult for most people that aren't schooling it, right? And this is where competition deviates from classical principles, okay, because it's got a, well, different reasons. But anyway, but then I also find within a lot of disciplines, Rainback is used as a punishment. It's you didn't listen to my hand or my seat, you get back here, I'm gonna, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And what I think is really important is that the Rainback is never a punishment. Okay. Now, I'm not one that believes necessarily in punishment anyway. I think that there's offerings of clarity, but not necessarily offerings of punishment, but that comes back to a whole philosophical side of things. But what can be really challenging is creating the rain back as a gate if we use the rain back as a punishment. Because now you're saying, you know that thing I beat you up with? Now I want you to do a lot of it. <laughs> no, her sister, well, what are you what are you talking about? And so, of course, he brings tension in his body for it, right? But the rain back, the reason that I'm such a fanatic about the rain back is that it uses, engages, develops every muscle that the horse needs to use to carry the rider forward in balance, okay? When we talk about that whole self-carriage idea and eventually collection, 
we're talking about moving into the stabilizer muscles. Those stabilizers, I find, are most easily accessed through the rein back. It's also one of the best ways to access the thoracic sling is through the rein back. So when we do that, I want to feel eventually, like I could ask my horse to go as many steps backwards as I wanted in the true rein back where the haunches are sitting and the withers are lifting and the top line is rounding and the feet are diagonalizing and they're in self-carriage. I want to feel like I can go as many steps backwards as I ask for on whatever geometric shapes I ask for, right? So ultimately, ideally, I could be riding my entire dressage test in reverse, okay? But the rain back as we know it should be a two-beat diagonalized gait. So it's like the horse's jog, right? There's no suspension phase. So it's like a jog forward, but in reverse, where the feet should be diagonalized. Most horses that we see doing it will drag their front legs on the ground, okay, because they're heavy on the forehand. They're not lifting through the sternum, okay? If they begin to lift through the sternum, they lighten the forehand, and they'll start to lift and pick up and carry their front legs as they go. And then oftentimes, either because of uh, perceived punishment or simply because of being on the forehand, the horse will operate in broken diagonals. So they'll essentially walk backwards. So it'll be a four-beat gait in reverse very few horses do i find that we actually have to do something else therapeutic within the rein back like a leg yield inside the rein back to help them diagonalize but i would say probably in the last 10 years and however many thousand horses maybe we've had a handful of horses where we've asked for a leg yield in the rein back to help create the diagonalization but those were horses that had some pretty good physical challenges where they felt like emotionally and physically they felt like they couldn't come off the forehand okay uh, but it's really important that we're not pushing because when you ask the horse to trot forward or to walk forward or whatever forward gait you shouldn't feel like you have to beg for every stride right and the same should be true in the rain back you shouldn't feel like you have to beg for every stride of the rain back you should feel like he understands that almost like you clicked him into gear and he can carry himself back in that until you ask him to deviate. One thing I'll say about that, we differ a little bit in that I really do use individual legs when I'm on green horses there. Uh, and, and I'll explain okay. why, because I think you'll appreciate this. I think of the horse in a top view, if we're looking down like from a drone or something like that, and I'm picturing mm -hmm. the two halves of the horse. So if I put my right leg in the horse, what's going to happen is I'm going to contract the right side and elongate the left side. And so if I contract the right side, I'm going to draw that right front leg back and I'm going to push that left hind back. And so, mm -hmm. so I find if horses get a little stuck and they have a little trouble that I'll alternate legs with those diagonals and it helps, helps them flow with me a whole lot quicker where they, they're not as draggy. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, I can I've, totally follow that line of thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I, I've found that to be a pretty big, I, I have also found not a lot of riders can uh, pat their head and rub their stomach at the same time. So that's not something I necessarily present to everyone. But Right, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and in that case, you're talking about that bilateral suppleness and swinging mm -hmm. through the you know, through the rib cage, through the back, that axial rotate, you're creating that axial rotation that helps to carry the diagonalization. Yeah, totally. Absolutely. One of the other things that I would say is that you mentioned that it's a, a natural but not very used gait. I find that when I'm working with 
horses that are in the sympathetic nervous system, so typically the colts and the problem horses, backing them is a phenomenal way to downregulate them and put them back into the parasympathetic mind because it's awkward mm-hmm. enough that it breaks mm-hmm. up. They have to think about it a little bit. and they have to, So if you're really having a problem with a horse, and I don't mean flipping over dangerous kind of stuff, but you right. get stuck in some little area and you start working on just backing up for five minutes, a lot of times it's going to bring them right back into mm-hmm. that thinking state and now we can go on. But like you say, you have to be, you can't be punishing them with that and then wanting it to be a viable tool also over absolutely absolutely it it can be a great reset button and then along that same vein too daniel that i think is really important because i'm sure you're going to have a listener who's going to be thinking of this and saying yeah but when my horse doesn't want to do something they back up right Mm -hmm. so you'll see sometimes horses will use that as a as an evasion okay but when you watch them use backing up as an evasion it's not a rain back Right. And that's where I differentiate a horse that's backing up as an evasion almost always has the head in the air, has the back dropped and they're dragging their front legs. They're not round in the top line. They're not necessarily diagonalized. They're certainly not carrying back in the front legs, that sort of thing. So so when I teach that, we might have and I'm going to I'm exaggerating when I say this and I use this analogy in clinics all the time too to help people understand the difference. But you might have a horse back up 17 laps around the arena before he gives you two steps of rain back. Right? Because it's it's very separate from that. So I I just wanted to clarify there because especially when we start talking about problem horses and hitting that reset button because I think we can we can get a lot of people in trouble where they they get to rushing one backwards, you know. Like you'll see people, and I hope I'm not offending anybody by saying this, but you'll see people kind of chase a horse backwards with a flag, and they get him like looking like a giraffe, and his sternum could drag the arena for you, and his feet are flying, and dust is going everywhere, and whatever. But they're saying get back off me, or go backwards, or whatever. And that's a that's a horse that's backing up. It's not a horse in rain back, right? And so when you're talking about resetting one, I'm I'm fairly certain based on the discussions that we've had up to this point and in the past that you're actually aiming for that true rain back where there's a softness and a rounding in the top line and there's all the pieces that we talked about right there, which is I'm with you a thousand percent. That's a great way to hit the reset button. In fact, when I'm teaching in handwork and a lot of times even with students when they're horseback, I'll tell them if anything goes wrong, halt, rock back or rain back and reset. Like that's like, it's such a mantra. We could make a t-shirt out of it, you know, Mm -hmm. halt, rock back, rain back, reset, you know, because the rain back is such a great reset. You know, it's the, I refer to it often as the ultimate rebalancing gate because it uses all of those stabilizer muscles. You know, it engages the rebalancing muscles. And this is where with the dressage riders, I tell them if you can't rein back properly, you don't have a half halt. Because the idea of the half halt is to help the horse rebalance. Well, if you don't have the gate of rebalancing, how are you gonna have a forward moment of rebalancing within that if you haven't developed it through your rein back? Well, this is one of those things that I wonder if if it's more influential in some of the differences that we see within breeds as well. 
because like these quarter horses are typically going to be introduced into the rain back much, much, much sooner and thus start developing that extra strength immediately where like you say that Lusitano, we waited a couple more years to start. Now we need to spend a few months developing before we're at the same place this horse was at mm-hmm. two years prior, but it's maybe it's not so much breed. It's more culture. It is that these people are accessing this development tool and these people are not. And what we're seeing there is the difference between, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and I think you could, you could at the same time be looking at a combination of both. Mm-hmm. I think, I think all of that would be a super interesting study for somebody to do. Yeah. It would be. Yeah. Yeah. So one other thing I wanted to to talk with you about, this is similar to the contact issue in that I think a majority of people are going about this the wrong way or maybe don't have the map in their head as completely as we might like. So let's try to fill in the map for them a little bit. And this oh. is the difference between straight and stiff because I don't think those are anywhere near the same thing. <laughs> and I think a whole lot of times what people are calling straight, I would call stiff. So what would be your thoughts on that? <laughs> oh, boy. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So I think about straight. So we could have straight like this pencil is straight, right? And it's also inflexibly straight right i can't bend it that would to me that would go along the lines of what you're talking about as stiff but there's a difference between arrow straight and geometrically straight and th- th- i mean that's how i tend to think about right mm-hmm. and i'm sure there's way better ways of expressing it than what i'm gonna than what i'm gonna put out there but geometrically straight would be saying that your horse's spine the length of the spine is following the geometry that you're aiming to ride the arrow straight or the pencil stiff straight says here's my circle here's my horse's body right on that on that circle now when we talk about that we also need to understand that the fantasy of geometrically straight right is that a horse is flexing equally in every joint along the length of our geometry through the length of his spine so let's say we have a 10 meter circle right our idea is that the horse has an equal distribution of flexion through every one of those joints through the length of his spine we also know that's impossible because they have almost no flexion in the withers they have next they have zero flexion in the pelvis and the sacrum right laterally speaking okay and they have a very very little flexion through the rib cage they have an axial rotation that allows them to round but it's not so much a flexion in that way so we have it as an idea but as a reality it's not a thing right uh in that equal distribution idea But from the feel of the rider, it will feel that way when your horse is following the line. So it's interesting that you bring this up because it's one of those topics that always brings me back to riding with Ray. 
And he would talk about riding a circle and riding a snake trail, right? And if you were following a cow, he would say, you knock out the tracks of that cow and you just follow that and you snake trail that or you whatever. You picture that circle in your mind. And it's one of those things that I do always to the point where I do it subconsciously. But if I'm riding a circle, I picture that circle like there's an arrow. Like, I don't know if you've you've done any kind of construction or anything like that, but we have mm -hmm. like the um, the laser levels, right, where it'll put that laser beam out there. I think about that laser level as drawing my geometry. And my idea is that I want my horse's left feet front and hind to be on the left side of that laser level right that laser beam and i want his right front and right hind to be on the right side of that laser beam and actually something that i used to teach when i would teach uh i used to teach five day clinics for cow working and for foundation work and one was for trail riding and one of the things that we would do is we would head out on one of the local not frequently used highways, but it was enough of a used road that they had double painted lines on it around the bends. And I would task riders with, can you ride your horse's left front and left hind on the left yellow line and their right front and right hind on the right yellow line as we go around this bend? That to me is more the idea of straightness where there's a flexion through the spine but it stays stable. <laughs> One of the things that we can also run into if we, I don't want to say over foundation because that, that doesn't fit necessarily. If we don't quite understand the foundation and we get one uber flexible, if our horse makes Gumby look like the Tin Man, then you can get a horse that it, it's like you're playing the damned hokey pokey with him while you're trying to ride a 20 meter circle. Like he's got a left foot in, he's got a left foot out. He's got, you know, he's all over the place. That's a horse that has gone beyond straight and beyond flexible to the point of al dente, right? If we were cooking noodles. And so I joke a lot about al dente dressage. It's like the horse is so... Um, used to being put in different places that he can't hold himself in one stable place. And that's not good for the horse either. But I'll say from the rider's perspective, some riders have to get to that point to realize that they got off track of their map. Yeah. Right. Like going back to the map that we talked about before, you know, if, if you want the recipe of how to create the horse he's talking about, do a whole lot of, quote-unquote, lateral flexion of putting his nose all the way on your toe and disengage the hindquarters about 80,000 times, and you will be there. That That is how you create that yep. train wreck right there. So that's, that you, is one of my biggest And you, too, can ride out that dangerous eyes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so a couple of things that brought me off on. I, I love the way that you described it. One of the things I would, I would say where I feel like contact becomes a problem here, I see – a lot of horses in in all of the disciplines, I'm not even going to just say English here, but like the, the Western disciplines as well, where a lot of contact is ridden, they tend to, and I think this comes from not appreciating the extension and doing the, the contraction, the turtling stuff of holding the horse in all the time. If you mm -hmm. film a horse trotting toward you 
and then put it in slow motion, you will notice that their nose moves left and right. They go left side, left contraction line I was talking about. Mm -hmm. And and mm -hmm. when they're ridden in contact by a rider that doesn't appreciate that or give the horse room to do that, they wind up doing what, what I compare to like a chicken. If you ever pick the chicken up and move the body around and the head stays in exactly the same place, that's what those horses wind up like they, they no longer have the natural movement of the head. They wind up locked into this one yes. spot and locked is a word. There's a word for that actually. And I, I just saw an article today that, that came out about that. And I can't remember what the word is for that, but there's a specific word for what that is. Yeah. yeah. And would, would that word, do you think that would be associated with relaxed or anything like that? Or does that word maybe more associated with tense, brace things along, <laughs> along those lines? Well, I, you know, it's it's funny that you say that. And actually, when you so I, I'm going to dive this in for the for the geeks and the nerds that are listening. When you talk about how the horse's nose will, it'll it'll deviate right in that trot when they're trotting forward toward you. And it'll do the same thing in the walk. It'll deviate. It won't necessarily in the canter, not nearly as much sometimes, but not nearly as much. But in the walk and the trot, the head will vacillate like that, or uh, my friend Jillian refers to it as an oscillation, right? It'll basically what happens is that the horse has a natural tendency for the nose to be drawn toward the hind leg that is on the ground, okay? Which is what makes the, the movements of haunches in and half pass really challenging because they're not a counter bend movement. They're a counter balance movement. So if you've ever asked a horse to move with the hip to the inside, they always have the tendency to want the nose to go to the outside because the outside hind is carrying more weight and the nose naturally wants to draw that way, right? Mm -hmm. That's just how the horse's body functions. So it, it's a lot like us learning how to pat our head and rub our belly. We have to do something in, in different phases, right? And the horse has to do that at the same time. So that, that oscillation in there comes from the load bearing of that. And then you talked about, and I love that you talked about this, you talked about the chicken. Several of my students laugh because I ask them frequently in the walk specifically, are you riding a fish or are you riding a chicken? <laughs> I, I'm going to throw the fish in there from now on. That is perfect. That absolutely there you go. <laughs> and, and the reason that I asked that, like, I will admit it was my ex-wife that introduced that idea to me. Are you riding a fish or are you riding a chicken? And it makes so much sense. I give her a ton of credit for that. It makes so much sense. Um, if you picture a chicken walking through the yard, they struck and the head bobs, right? Well, chickens have pretty tight backs. I don't know if you've ever met a chicken chiropractor, <laughs> but I've met a chicken chiropractor once, and they said that every chicken they work on, they have to adjust their back because they're so tight in the back. <laughs> but that's, now we're just getting silly. But so, so if we watch a horse that's walking with a head that's bobbing, forward and back and forward, or, or basically up and down, up and down, up and down, if you're riding on him, okay? That's a horse that's walking too fast for their current state of balance and too fast for the relaxation of the top line. A horse that's walking released through the back will move more like a fish. The fish moves laterally from the tail, right? So if you can picture that, 
if the tail goes, say, uh, in this case, the horse's tail, right, the inside hind, so the, let's say the left hind, if the left hind strikes the ground, the nose is going to then be drawn to the left because it's going to roll through laterally through the spine. When the right hind strikes the ground, that's going to roll laterally through the spine and the nose is going to roll to the right. So if we were ideally riding the walk, it would feel more like a fish and less like a chicken. Okay. And so one of the things that we see, actually, we see it coached really common is push your, when we're riding in contact, right? When we first start to learn to ride in contact, it's push the hands forward as the horse's head goes forward in the walk. It's like, well, why in the heck is the head going forward in the walk? Because he's walking like a chicken, right? If he was walking like a fish, <laughs> it would be a little left give, right give, left give, right give, but it wouldn't be a push and jar, push and jar, push and jar like the chicken walk. Yeah. Uh, remind me again, Patrick, when you mess up the foundation on the horse, about how easy is that to fix years later with all of the habits and muscle <laughs> that... And so we teach these kids all these things that when they're 35, all of a sudden they realize, wow, I have a lot of work left to do, right? Whoops. That's one of the, I don't right? think kids Whoops. should be riding. How easy is it to do? Yeah. You, it, you need to be a pretty oh good my rider gosh. before well, you start you know, riding. It's, it's one of those things that's so interesting. Yeah, it's so interesting because the horse is so much easier to change than the rider, Right. Because to the horse, better balance always feels better. Better movement always feels better. Better posture always feels better. They don't hold the stories that we do. You know, like we hang on to the stories that keep us stuck in the habits, that keep us stuck in the thought patterns, that keep us stuck in the whatever. And I'm not saying that horses never have those things, right? Because, of course, that they do. Um, but horses are more yoga junkies than we are. Like when you show them a position or a posture or a movement that feels better to their body, especially if you can set it up that they're the ones that find it, they want to get there as often and as frequently as possible, or as quickly and as frequently as possible. Yeah. One of the things I've noticed over the years with the cults that I start is that I, one of the things I'm just naturally really good at is getting a horse to pivot on the outside hind front foot just within a couple of rides. I've got that down pretty darn okay. good. Mm -hmm. You'll start seeing those cults a week later out there in the paddock. And they move that way naturally all the time by themselves now because yep. they found that better way to move. And now it's just, you know, I'm not, I'm not like working with them out there or anything. It just is becoming a better way to move because mm -hmm. they're finding the balance, appreciating it. And, and man, is life easy on the stuff I'm doing after that, which could get us. In Absolutely. And that's something that's important to think about because, you know, when we, when we talk about riding, I don't remember which which writer it was which master it was i believe it may have been xenophon who said something along the lines of if the horse is not getting more beautiful in his body and his movements on his own by way of the work that we're doing we're not doing the correct work and i've told i guarantee i messed that quote up right but that's the gist of it is that if the horse isn't improving on his own, if he doesn't look better when he's out in the paddock because of the work that we did in the arena, chances are the work that we did in the arena was crap. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I certainly agree with the sentiment. I actually do a fair bit of 
fighting dogma and stuff. Uh, well, I certainly appreciate the old masters. They weren't right about everything. There are some some things in those books that you should cringe at reading these days. My favorite Absolutely. thing to pick on is Xenophon has a quote in the art of horsemanship that I'm going to paraphrase here, but basically it is for a lazy horse. You need to get a friend to tie a mean cat to the end of a pole and shove it up between the yes. horse's back hind legs. And that's in that book. Yes. And, you know, that's Xenophon. If you want to follow a classical master, the first classical master, then you need to tie a mean cat to a pole and shove it up yep. between the back legs of a horse that's lazy. Yep. So, so there's some dog. Absolutely. Sometimes, sometimes classical isn't necessarily correct, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like we evolve in our understanding. You know, it's it's like that. It's it actually that's super interesting because I have a couple friends in Portugal. One, uh, and I'm I'm not going to name anybody, but um, one uh, used to be a bullfighter, and one is very against bullfighting. And uh, like I I would not say that I am for bullfighting. I recognize it, I understand it, and I I understand that it's a cultural thing in 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 some regions. <clears throat> but sitting at dinner with these two guys. And they were they were arguing about it. And one says, yes, well, it, it's culture and it's history, you know. And the other says, well, historically, we used to stone women in the middle of the street, too. And we've evolved out of that. <laughs> if you could remove the killing of the bull and all of those aspects from bullfighting, it would be maybe the perfect sport. All of the intricacies and the trust and the relationship of the horse and the rider there and the challenge of the bull. Like there's a, um, Jorge Mendoza. I don't remember his name, but there's a Palomino horse named Merlin. You can look that up on YouTube and it is absolutely, if you can't I actually work with one of Merlin's sons, I believe. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's, it's hard for me to not to see someone that can't appreciate what goes into that horse, being able to do all that stuff. There's a whole lot there. Um, mm -hmm. one thing I wanted, I took a little note here on something you said earlier that I really liked. And, and I do want to add one little thing to something you said when you were talking about lateral flexion of the spine through the thoracic cavity and all of that, the, the thoracic cavity does have a little bit of lateral flexion. In it. it just doesn't have much. It's, it's down to like a few degrees per vertebra and the lumbar spine mm -hmm. has even less. It's like one or one and a half degrees or something like that per vertebra i have always thought of the loin of the horse the lumbar section sort of as the transmission where we have the hind legs driving everything but that loin to me is a part of the horse people don't talk nearly as much about it doesn't have a lot of flexion but the flexion it has is everything that is the difference to me in in an in intermediate, pretty good horse riding and truly advanced mastery type riding. It, it is mastery of the loin and that little bit of flexion that it does have is it's the coiled spring that transmits everything up and allows the collection and all of that to take place. So I just wanted to add that to what we were talking about. And also 100 percent. I think that's so great that you refer to it as the transmission. And interestingly enough, I refer to it as the transition center. Okay. Or sometimes Grand Central Station, <laughs> where nothing from behind is getting through if it can't get through Grand Central Station. 
right? That, yeah. So that that's so interesting. I love I love that you refer to it that way because that's a hundred percent true. And just like in us, right? How many times do you hold tension in your lower back and it restricts your movement? Except we're bipedal, we're not quadrupedal, right? So we don't see it as often or as obviously as what we would see it in our horses. So one of the huge things that we look for with our horses is how much mobility do they have behind the saddle in front of the pelvis, right? In that lumbar spine area, in that low back area. Because until you have that supple, you the I talk about it as being one of the kinks in the hose, right? I'm always thinking about the spine as a garden hose. And if you've got kinks in the hose, water's not flowing through, right? And that's one of the biggest areas. If that area is kinked, the water is not flowing from back to front. I don't care how much you try. Yeah. To, to me, going back to your Princess Bride, Inigo Montoya is the character that says it. That word you mean, I, I don't think it means what you think it means. That is that phrase of through the back, which I hate. Oh, 100%. I have never heard that phrase explained. But to me, that's what they're trying to say is that the loin has to get freed up and strengthened in order to transmit this energy from the hind end to the front end and lift the thoracic swing and, and all mm -hmm. of those things. I, I have been wanting to set that's a cathartic moment for me. So thank you. I've been wanting to get that off. Of that's awesome. And it, and it goes, it extends throughout the entire length of the spine, you know, because you can have one that feels like he's almost through the back, but now we're stuck at the, uh you know we're stuck at the withers or we're stuck underneath the seat of the rider or we're stuck partially in the base of the neck or we're you know whatever and he can't be through the back if all the kinks of the hose aren't cleared yeah um one other thing i wanted to to bring up you had mentioned the axial rotation of the thoracic and i i feel like again this is a good moment to bring clarity one of those phrases we hear a lot is about horses that have dropped a shoulder and drop the shoulder is actually the exact opposite of what that horse is doing. They've actually rotated the thoracic sling and the shoulder is raised so that the withers are lowered on the left side or, or whatever. But the actual shoulder itself, the leg doesn't get shorter or longer, right? The scapula simply moves up toward the withers or it moves down toward the sternum. What we would generally prefer to happen is that the horse does a kind of a scapular push-up and rate lifts the sternum and the, the withers up, but the shoulders themselves, truly a dropped shoulder is a lifted wither. So that's one of those phrases that we use a lot, but the actual terminology is completely backwards of what is going on with the horse right there. So once again, and isn't I, it funny how that happens all the darn time, right? Hmm. And, and I talk about, I talk a lot about a horse's balancing diagonal. And when we're working with a horse, say on a circle, if if you and I were on the correct diagonal, the assumption would be that we're trotting and we're posting and we're going to, you know, like every little girl is taught in pony club. Even when I was a little girl, I was taught in pony club, rise and fall with the shoulder on the wall right? Like inside hind, outside front, that's the diagonal you post with, right? You rise and fall with the shoulder on the wall. You're moving with the inside hind and the outside front as the balancing diagonal. And so what we tend to think about, if you think about the horse in the canter, right? The footfall pattern of the canter is the outside hind, the diagonal pair, 
and the inside front. So the diagonal is the same as it was in the trough, the balancing diagonal, okay? But we get into the walk and those legs are not synchronized or syncopated. They don't move together, okay? But that doesn't mean that they're not a balancing diagonal pair of legs, right? And so what we think about, especially in the walk is where I pointed out a lot, is that if a horse feels like he's stepping heavier into that inside shoulder or he's dropping the shoulder, what that really to me means is that the horse himself is on the wrong diagonal. So it's a balance issue, right? So like if we're, if you and I are posting as we're riding on a circle, we could be on the correct diagonal. But does that mean that our horse is on the correct diagonal? Not always. He could be balancing on the opposing diagonal, which now, of course, it's going to have all those challenges and all those issues that you're talking about. So I get a bit obsessive about the balancing diagonal, about is my horse on the correct diagonal or not? And then am I on the supporting diagonal for the balance or not? which sometimes is inside and sometimes is outside, depending on the horse where his body might be. Because maybe we're we're working therapeutically for a horse and we need to be on a different one or something like that. So that would also be one, assuming we don't have a physical issue, that we've got a, a horse that just is out of balance and needs our help. That would be one of my times to violate the equitation rules. And I'm going to drag him over here with me and help him to see this is where the balance is. And as we just talked about with the Colts, now that when they they want they're addicted to yoga, right? That once they start finding the better balance and they start to feel it and get it, then then it should take care of itself, and I won't have to do that. It happens. I don't get tons of horses like this, but but I've definitely had some over the career that just would not take a certain lead. Uh, I even had one I named Lefty. Mm -hmm. You know, and when you, it may take you a month or two to get them to finally take that other lead. But normally once they do and they lope on it a little bit, it's then no longer a problem. They find the, mm -hmm. unless there's like a pain issue, you know, something that was really causing it to be. Sure. A, a, a serious, but, yeah, 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 exactly. But, but once they sort of find it and they learn to balance and get a little bit comfortable on it, then, then it's never, you'll forget in six months that that was ever something you fought for two months mm -hmm. way back when. So Absolutely. And that's the value to me of the leg yield is that the leg yield validates the proper balancing diagonal. So you'll also hear some classical purists that talk about, oh, we don't ever use the leg yield because the leg yield, blah, 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 does whatever, hyperextension, hyper, blah, blah, blah. To me, that's if you're using the leg yield incorrectly. If you're using a gradual soft leg yield where the horse is connecting to the seat and finding the appropriate balancing diagonal, then that's going to help the horse find that correct lead. And to me, I almost never on a young horse ask for a canter without first asking for a leg yield to validate the balancing diagonal so that then we can break apart the legs that need to break apart while they're synchronized in the, mm -hmm. the balancing diagonal in that case. And that's, that's one of those things that I think is super interesting from the perspective of do we leg yield, do we not? Because I have people ask me that all the time. Well, so-and-so says there's no value in a leg yield. Well, maybe they're not thinking of the leg yield in the right way. I'm thinking of it as a rebalancing, you know. And one of the things that I teach riders, uh, say, on a circle or even on a straight line, is to find and feel the balancing diagonal. And so one of the things, and I love that you talked about this, 
as far as helping them find it, helping them feel it, and deviating from equitation. When the horse is really relaxed from the top line, we don't necessarily have to deviate from the equitation. But what we can do, let's say we're riding on a straight line, okay? And we're, we're tracking left around the arena. I'll just say that as a, as a generalization, right? But we're riding on a straight line. So because the world is a giant ball, we're really always riding on a circle anyway, okay? <laughs> so the appropriate balancing diagonal, if we're tracking left, even on the straight line, would be left hind and right front, inside hind and outside front, right? But oftentimes, if left to their own devices, at the walk especially, the horse will bounce back and forth, left front, right front, left front, right front, okay? Which is what makes the walk, I think, one of the hardest gates to ride well and well-balanced and well-connected without interference. But one of the things that I coach riders to is think about inside hind and outside front. And you can feel that horse and you can watch it. You can feel the horse lock in inside hind and outside front and then i tell them think about the outside hind and the inside front and immediately like i almost don't get finished saying it and the horse drops as people would say drops the inside shoulder because he goes then from outside hind to inside front because if the horse is relaxed enough in the top line they almost cannot help but respond to the subtle changes of our seat and this is where the perfectionist side of the equitation can come from okay mm -hmm. not saying that we should never deviate right but saying if the horse's top line is really relaxed we have in our brain and body connection what we refer to as the idiomotor response that says simply you can't think a thought without your body making a change mm -hmm. so if you think inside hind to outside front you put your horse and yourself on that correct, as we would call it, the correct diagonal. If you think outside hind and inside front, you put yourself and your horse on the incorrect diagonal, on the other diagonal, right? We couldn't, we shouldn't say correct or incorrect. It's left or right, not right or wrong, right? Uh, dependent on what we want to ask for. But if the top line is that supple and receptive, and that's the part too, is if the horse's back is receptive, the seat can be effective. But if the horse's back is braced, well, then they can't hear our seat anyway. And that's when, what you're talking about right there, we have to deviate from the laws of classical equitation. We might have to get out of position within restrictions, within reason, mm -hmm. right, to help the horse come back to us so that we can find that center of balance again. Yeah, I think about it as getting louder. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deviate until they yeah. hear me. And then when they hear me now, we're having a conversation again. I got their, their back is back. And Absolutely. now my butt can talk to it as I want it to. Right. Yep. So. Yep. It's all about, let me clarify. Yeah. Let's talk about a little bit of your offerings as a teacher. You've got this academy that you have launched online and you've been doing, you've got your in-hand courses and all. So why don't you tell us a little bit about your offerings and, and sort of what, what entails participation in that like i'm not sure if your academy is currently open to new students or not so so give us the lay of the land there hmm. yeah absolutely <clears throat> so um i have started online because uh, well actually covid was the reason and the excuse to branch out more online and i've been doing more 
online teaching, virtual lessons, you know, in, in a given day, I could be working with somebody in any darn country in the world, which I think is so fascinating that we've come to the point that we've got the technology to do that, just like we're having this conversation right here, right? But that's helped me to understand that I can help coach students or work with students, even if indirectly through video form, all over the world, even when they can't make it to a clinic. And so that's where I've developed. It's the Academy for Classical Horsemanship. If folks want to look up academyforclassicalhorsemanship.com, uh, that'll take them to my online learning platform there. And within the Academy, we have each month, we have new videos that get released. And it's always been more videos than what I've promised. I promise one new video a month, but I always do two or three. And within each of those, we have a Zoom call. And recently, our monthly Zooms have been themed. So I'm going to hit you up, actually, to pull you into one of those at one point here when we can make it happen. But the themes have been very, they've been uh, focused on topics like clarity was one of our topics. I talked to Jack Ballou, our mutual friend, for several months for topics like the warm-up and the working session. And so we focus just on what's that warm-up look like and how do we best warm our horse up and things like that. I had a conversation uh, for a while, for the one month it was about breathing. And we broke that down and we talked about the rider's breathing and then the horse's breathing. And so we talked to a body worker about the horse's diaphragm and how that works and, and to a yoga coach who coaches breath work for riders and how does that work, that sort of thing. So um, the monthly themes have been super cool. And we have also a community uh, where it's it's kind of like a Facebook-ish, but it's not part of Facebook. It's its own separate platform for anybody that doesn't want to be part of the typical social media stuff. It's a separate thing from that where folks can engage and interact, talking specifically about what they're doing with their horses within the academy, outside of the academy, that sort of thing. And I do have a premium side of that where we've got folks that do get two virtual lessons a month with me, and then they have their own individual Zoom sessions as well, where we can zone in because I keep it limited to only 12 students. So they get to focus really intensely on. So for this next hour and a half, we're going to talk about you and your horses, you know, versus the large open community that doesn't have that virtual lesson piece of that because there's only so much time right in the in the day to be teaching those and that academy really focuses on all the functions or all the the facets of horsemanship from basic foundation work up through more advanced work i've got uh, in-hand work i've got basic groundwork i've got foundation horsemanship we've got several videos of me starting young horses under saddle and coaching friends even starting young horses under saddle up through the lateral work and things like that. I include lessons that I've been teaching and lessons that I've been taking. So like I put myself out on a limb there for folks to see where I get corrections and things like that. And that's all part of that base academy there. And the, the gist of it is want to share all of it, right? Which sounds like a lot, but if you don't know, again, going back to the map analogy that we used earlier, if you don't know where you're aiming for, it's easy to get off track. Like if you don't know what that Grand Prix looks like, how do you know if you're starting that young horse to actually aim toward that? And and granted, maybe that's not where you want to aim. Maybe you want to aim for some other track, right? 
Uh, but it's about knowing what's that track that you're aiming for in the long tail of it. How do you play the long tail strategically? Well, Patrick, we talked about the Academy. Was there anything else that I have forgotten to ask you that you'd like to discuss with us? Yeah. So actually I have two things. One thing I have a in-hand course that was developed several years ago when I first got into teaching virtually, basically. I, I was one that I was a little bit slow and late to the party on the whole online teaching and that sort of thing. But I've got a whole in-hand course online that we refer to as developing balance in hand. And if your listeners want to go to balanceinhand.com, that will take them to the information on that course. Now, depending on when this podcast goes on out or when people are listening to this, that course may be open or closed. That's not run by me. That's run by another organization. But if that course is closed, they can email me and I'll make sure that they can get into that. I can send contact information for that. But that talks about the in-hand work from super basics when we talk about releasing the pole and it coaches all the way up through beginning pee-off work in hand. So that's a pretty comprehensive course right there. And one of the things that I also wanted to mention for all of your listeners is that, you know, we talk so much about our aids and how important our aids are and the timing of our aids and how our horse can only understand the aids when they're given in time with the footfall. So one of the things that I wanted to offer to all of the listeners is that if they are interested, they can go to academyforclassicalhorsemanship.com slash opt dash in. So it's opt in with a hyphen, right? So academyforclassicalhorsemanship.com slash opt hyphen in. And that's going to let them access a video actually where we break down the timing of the aids within the horse's footfall. And where if you ask for whatever it is you're asking for, if you apply an aid at this particular moment of footfall, what's that actually going to do to your horse? And how is your horse going to be able to respond? Because if we think about it, there's four phases, and we didn't talk about it in here, but I'm just going to give a generalization real quick. There's four phases to every step that a horse takes. And there's four legs underneath the horse, right? So four phases and four legs, that means in every stride, there's 16 individual moments that happen. And the one thing that we want to have happen is reliant on us asking at the one in 16 phases, right? Otherwise, the horse will either say, nope, sorry, don't understand it, or hang on, wait, I have 14 other things to take care of first and I'll get back to you, right? So the video that that link will allow them to access really helps them understand each individual phase of footfall and how they can appropriately ask for what it is they want from their horse within the right timing of that. Because it is, it is really essential. The horse can only understand the aids as they're given in time of the footfall. Got to prepare the position for the transition to take care of a hundred percent. You prepare the position for the transition. The transition takes care of itself at a hundred percent. I will tell you, I'll take advantage of that because that is the kind of thing that uh, just searching on your own, it will take you years to figure out the footfall <laughs> stuff. And uh, it's, it's, uh, that's a rite of passage right there. When you meet somebody that has, 
that is at that level and you recognize it like you know they went through some hair pulling crying do i really want to do this with my life <laughs> sort of fetal position in the shower with an unopened budweiser yeah it's that kind of a thing so <laughs> so patrick can help you all through oh that my quickly. gosh i i think about that I think about that all the time, right? Like it's when I first started learning about footfall, I, I remember reading Ray Hunt's book and an article in the old Western Horseman. I think it was the early 90s. I read this article in Western Horseman about knowing where the horse's feet were underneath you and understanding footfall. And I spent so many years riding down a back road so that I would have a level place to see my horse's shadow while his feet were moving so that I could see what was happening with his feet. And because I'm a man, rhythm just doesn't come naturally to me. So I had to really study hard to find out when each foot was landing and all of those things. And thank goodness I've gotten way better at teaching it since then. But that that really became an obsession of mine is to figure out wh what's happening and what moment and when is what's the next thing that's going to happen and all of those things, because it makes every bit of difference to our horses, every bit of difference. It's the difference between things going smoothly and, and not, right? <laughs> yeah. 100%. Absolutely. I mean, it's the difference between a left lead and a right lead when it really counts. Yep. Yeah. Well, Patrick, I can't thank you enough for coming on. I have uh, truly enjoyed our talk here, as always. I know, folks, this was this was probably a pretty high-level one for uh, most of you, but I like it. So anyway, hopefully, if nothing else, maybe it <laughs> motivates you to listen to it again and, and figure out what in the hell they were really talking about when they said this or whatever. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Daniel, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I, I really love... I love the opportunity to have these conversations and you can tell I kind of get into it. You know, it's like I, I super nerd out about these things. And of course, we'll have all the links to everything that Patrick talked about will be in the uh, show notes. So y'all can find all of that there and uh, look for him down the road. I didn't think to ask you, where are you based out of, Patrick? Ah, so I'm based out of Natural Bridge, Virginia, which is uh, just south of Lexington, Virginia, which we always refer to as the other Lexington, because folks think of Lexington, Kentucky. We say we're in the other Lexington. But yeah, Natural Bridge, Virginia. So he's got a really nice facility out there. I I'm trying to make my way over there to it one of these days. And I know you're probably less on the road this year than you have been on the past, but Patrick is uh, is a road warrior. He's been out there a ton. So y'all can find him various places. And like I say, he does the virtual coaching lessons. I think you do a decent number of clinics bringing in other clinicians like Charles DeConfi at your place and so forth too. So, mm -hmm. um, so that's Absolutely. one of the things I really like about Patrick is he's, he's not territorial about this kind of stuff. He's happy to help people genuinely, even if he's not the one in the spotlight at the time. And, and that's not a super common trait in our particular business. So, so hats <laughs> off to you, Patrick. And again, thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you, Daniel. It's been so much fun. I can't wait till next time. We'll see you next week for another episode of Adult Onset Horsemanship. I've been your host, Daniel Dolphin.